What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Actually Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And tonight we're going to be continuing our journey through John Berbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This is episode 18 on Plotinus and Neoplatonism. In our previous episode, we covered Gnosis and existential inertia, or I should say Berbeke covered Gnosis and existential inertia, and we provided our commentary on that. Let me go ahead and get us live here on Facebook really quickly. I'll be right back then. Yeah, so we talked about in our previous episode how we can be fractured in that war with ourselves. How it feels like cosmic forces have a way of affecting us. And Gnosis was a way that people developed to begin to find ways to orient themselves. All right, what's up, everybody? Hey, hey, Facebook fam. We are live once again, covering John Berbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, Part 18, Plotinus and Neoplatonism tonight. We were just discussing the previous episode, uh, Gnosis and Existential Inertia. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned a book, um, the, what is it, uh, Sovereignty of the Good. Mm. Um, we discussed uh, sensibility, transcendence. It's not the reason of morality, but the viability of morality. Um, so viabil- viability means livability. Is it something you can actually see yourself living in? Mm-hmm. So when we use the word viable, that's we're talking about something that could be a lived-in option. Um, Uh, there was a lot. Yeah, the Gnosis' attempt was to try and control this axial age revolution and its influence, its culmination and direction. And so our worldviews were becoming increasingly integrated in ways of seeing ourselves and the world in in a form of mutual conformity, of reciprocal revelation. And we were gaining this participatory knowing with our environments, recognizing this, and the difference between believing in something and actually it being a livable opportunity is what the early Gnostics and Christians were trying to figure out. It was like, uh, you know, taking the words instead of just reading the words and intellectualizing the words, but actually living within the words was an example. Mm -hmm. Um, And our process of reasoning, which depends on what we love and how, like how we care and what we care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentions the idea of the unthinkable. Yes. Um, things that aren't, you know, like, you know, he mentioned, you know, like kicking out, kicking his son out of the house, you know, that's unthinkable for him mm-hmm. because it's not a, a livable option in yeah. his head, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, he could do that and he'd have a little extra room to have something, you know, a, you know, a studio or something in there or this, that or the other. But it's unthinkable because of, you know, the love and care he has with um, his child. Um, so something that is unthinkable is something that is unviable, unlivable. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, got a note here. We can run the thought, but cannot make a viable living world. Um, and... This brings us into um, uh, 
this brings us into like you know like say you got a, like you got a goal that you want to get to mm-hmm. and you can think about it and be like yeah you know like I could do this this or this to lead me along the goal and everything but it's not really a livable option for you mm-hmm. yep. um, creating a certain amount of stuckness mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there's you have to forgive me there's like last episode was very notes dense and if we go through all of it it's going to take an hour and a half <laughs> it was actually uh, it was yeah. a very dense episode it was a great episode but we did learn um, about knowing by loving mm-hmm. and that mutually accelerated disclosure um, we learned again about how we can bullshit ourselves and that's the technical term there BS ourselves existential inertia yeah is that yes there's a state that one wishes to be in but we feel stuck yeah and you can you can tell yourself all that you want but cannot make the change. Mm-hmm. It's like that sense and of dukkha in Buddhism. Going back yeah. to this, the like a wheel off kilter, you just can't seem to get it quite in alignment. And sometimes, if you try, you could lose your agency yes. in the trying, yes. and you can feel powerless, mm-hmm. and then be even more stuck than you were stuck before. Yeah. So we learned how therapy, traditional therapy that we have nowadays, actually has an agopic orientation. So we've learned about the three different kinds of love, uh, eros, philia, and agape. And agape is the kind of love that Jesus presented to the world. It's also the love that we see exhibited by parents to their children. And it's a selfless kind of love. It's a creative kind of love. Mm. It's a quite unconditional love as well. It's when we talked a lot in our last episode about forgiveness and how we can give love and forgiveness itself prior to its, you know, yeah. prior to anything. We can just give it outright rather than expecting something to happen first mm-hmm. before, we have, before we give that love. Yeah. So he, he brought up a little thought experiment of like, you know, you're tasting a new fruit and you'll either love it or you'll hate, hate it, it precisely because of its differences, but you don't know until you try the fruit. Now with this example, there, there isn't really a big stake. So it's just, you know, like take a bite of the fruit and you know, whatever, if you don't like it, you spit it out. But then, you know, what, if you took it a little further, what would be, you know, what would it be like to have a kid? Mm-hmm. You won't know what you have to sacrifice until you do it. And you won't know the benefits of it until you do it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where we have, you know, ritualistic, tra- um, traditions role-playing yeah G that, form that allows and even kids you know i mentioned last week you know like Simulated kids playing play. house you yeah know, you know like you know like the boy kid you know walks in and pretends to be tired and puts down the briefcase and sits yeah, down right. and then you know, a little girl comes up kids with the fake eggs on there house, yeah. you know and then trying to in a safe way touch on or in a safe way play at identity participate in these of ideas yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can do this within, you know, within a therapy session too, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, there's one thing, you know, years ago I was looking at, it was exposure therapy for, um, guys with PTSD in the military. So they'd use like, at this time it was pretty primitive VR, but what they would do is they would put them into say, like, I don't know, they where they got injured, they were in a tank. So they put them mm-hmm. in a tank simulator yeah. and they'd go through the simulation Wow. And bring them out and talk with them and do that and then put them in again and keep exposing them to it in a safe place to go th- 
to keep going through it to then be able to go get through the over trauma. It. Yeah. Um, well, this this what what we were discussing here is similar to that, but different in a way where instead of having gone through it and then being scarred by it and then trying to get past that, what we're doing is we're trying to try things out without having to do the life or death, if you will. That's why we it. do do serious play, yeah. Because yeah. it puts us in a liminal zone where we can intelligently gain social acuity or whatever kind of acuity in any, any different situation that we can imagine before actually going through it. Yeah. All so right. it's not only about fun and sensory stipu- uh, stimulation, it's, you know, very many things, playing music, is a very serious thing sometimes. Uh, tai Chi, there's deep engagement with the processes, there's transformation that occurs as a result. So this is a very important kind of play that humans and other mammals sure. access. Uh, yeah, because, you know, at the end of the day, you, you don't know till you know, and you won't know until you do. Yeah, so, a ritual is a very sophisticated kind mm-hmm. of play. Um, he, he also mentioned, you know, like somebody who's in like therapy and say they're stuck on an idea and they don't want to change their mind about the idea, but they know they need to change their mind about that idea. Well, you, in this case, he's talking about, you know, you go in further and it's like, well, what's something that you like about yourself? You wouldn't change. And the person's like, well, you know, like my, my tenacity and stick to itiveness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the note I have for that is the things you want to change. You also don't want to change. Right. Too. So that's one of the things that sticks you Yeah. as well. You know, yeah. it's like, well, I like that you know, stubbornness about myself, you know, I, I, I make sure that I'm not a pushover and everything, but yeah. sometimes maybe the problem is you need to be a little bit more yielding. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he learns how altered states of consciousness, higher states of consciousness experiences motivate us mm-hmm. to self-transform, to self-transcend. So they're very important in that way. And that perspectival transformation that can occurs that can occur then changes our participatory relation with our environments, with reality and other people. And then we are able to more fluidly engage in the process of reciprocal revelation or reciprocal realization where as I become wiser, you are becoming wiser as well. We are the agent and the arena are informing one another or the agents are informing one another mutually like an interdependent relationship versus a codependent sort of relationship. So uh, we've talked about um, an active analogy, mm-hmm. which is like uh, combining the perspectival and the participatory mm-hmm. um, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, which so an active analogy would be like like a good game or a good ritual that gets you oh, yes. close yeah. enough to you know the context of a certain situation. Certain situation. Yeah. And blurs that psychodrama with real life, mm-hmm. and the analogy part is it's well, it's a game. Like say the game, like say chess, is simulating warfare. It's a very you know, on a board as far away from warfare as you can get. Mm-hmm. But say like you know we have like strategy games and other stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that's the same thing you're using an analogy mm-hmm. to try to help you go through the experience to gain the insights that you would if you were having that experience, but without the danger of, you know, 
dying or right. breaking your leg. So you can learn tactics without being in a real battle, yeah. for instance, or it, when you play Even chess. if it's just like, you know, interpersonal stuff too. Like, or problem solving. Yeah, yeah, learning things. Interpersonal learning in together. Where you're not going to offend somebody else so bad that they don't want to talk to you anymore. Engaging in competitive yeah. play that is actually boosting both of your intelligence and your problem solving acuity together mutually. So these kinds of practices, these psychotechnologies that we've developed, these technologies of our psychology that we've developed allow us to overcome existential inertia, that feeling of stuckness, mm -hmm. and they can be particularly powered up by altered states of consciousness, chanting, sleep, plant medicines, so on and so forth. This is how we free ourselves from these existential traps and the primary existential trap that is the subject of this entire series, the meaning crisis, as Verbeke has termed it, the meaning crisis that is ex existing around the world and civilizations all over the planet, in which we are experiencing social breakdown, distrust in the prevailing institutions, be they political governing systems, be they religious, be they media, be they judicial, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, our trust in our prevailing authorities and institutions and and moral systems that we would rally around are degrading and we are in a time to where we have to kind of recapitulate the old wisdom that is still good and useful for us and as we become more sophisticated in our understanding of our reality and so it's it's quite the interesting quagmire we've gotten ourselves into but it's a beautiful one too, and it seems almost an inevitable one for an intelligent species to run into at this point in its evolution. So this is all part of the process, fam. We don't have to panic. We can actually surf this tidal wave or don't do panic. our very it's best organic. to Yeah, right there. I like that. Don't panic, it's organic. Well, tigers are organic. You might want to <laughs> let the panic run through your system so you get that adrenaline to run in that case. Yeah. But right now the humans we do find are quite socially adept animals. We're great at working together. We're like ants when we come together we can create bridges across impossible moats that we never would have been able to cross by ourselves. So we have that power and this, this uh, series is an invitation into awakening from the meaning crisis together. So before we, before we get to the uh, next episode, um, I like Verveke's definition of gnosis, mm -hmm. it's a two-parter. What Gnosis does, it attempts to bring about an altered state of consciousness, um, and in this uh, through uh, ritual. So, mm -hmm. um, and Gnosis is to have a set of psychotechnology that allows us to overcome the stuckness and stupefaction through ritual. So we're trying to alter our state of consciousness through through a set of psychotechnologies. So with a ritual component to unstick yes. and unstupefy ourselves in a situation that may be unthinkable for us because we cannot put ourselves into living in that circumstance, even though we yeah. really want it to happen. Yeah. Um, and I like that because like gnosis is one of those words that's like it's got a million and a half different meanings for the same mm -hmm. word, and most of them are. It's a very confusing Not subject. Useful. For Bakey's very helpful here and and helping us understand what gnosis was when it began how Gnosticism developed and uh, the dark sides of when that ideology perhaps went wrong in some ways or just kind of went dark, you could say. Um, so we're going to challenge our uh, understanding of ancient Christianity and Gnosticism and 
we are going to see how they actually became quite intermarried. In fact, the way most churches worship today is inspired by the original mm -hmm. Gnosis movement that was happening at the time. The Gnosticism thing is something else altogether, and we'll get into that as well. And Brevigi does an excellent job of helping us understand what all, all this is all about. So join us. We're about to tune in now. It's a watch party. And it's going to be part 18 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, Plotinus, and Neoplatonism. Here we go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were taking a look at a group um, of people. Uh, as I said before, the Gnostics shouldn't be understood as forming like their own community or group, although there might have been some Gnostic churches. We should think of them more like we think of existentialism or fundamentalism. You can be a fundamentalist Christian or Muslim or Jew, etc. It's more about a style, uh, a way of being, a way of understanding and interpreting, uh, and that it, it was pervasive uh, during uh, the same period as early Christianity, and the two are interacting with each other. In fact, as we'll see, uh, many Gnostics uh, thought of themselves as Christians. So we were taking a look at how to go about interpreting um, Gnosticism. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because I'm presenting uh, the Gnostic movement as the axial revolution within the axial revolution. It's taking the revolution to its culmination in many important ways uh, that I think have direct relevance for us today. In order to do that, I'm presenting to you um, something like the cognitive science of what Gnosis actually is. And in order to do that, we've been making use of... Uh, some important work by Harry Frankfurt and L.A. Paul. The basic idea is that we can talk about people being existentially trapped and that that is a result of them being existentially stuck. They're, they have inertia. They do not know how to engage the anagoge in order to make a worldview viable to them. And they are uh, existentially indecisive. Um, that they are existentially stupefied uh, because they're facing a deep transformative experience and they don't know how to uh, reason their way through it. They don't know if they should do it. And that existential entrapment uh, can be very, very uh, damaging. It can fragment your world and tear apart your agency. And so people can suffer from this in a profound way, which means Gnosticism, as Hans Jonas and other people have seen, um, is directly relevant to a lot of uh, the modern confrontation with meaninglessness and nihilism because in the meaning crisis, people also similarly feel deeply existentially trapped. So what is needed, um, what is needed, I argued, is uh, a recovery of serious play uh, through the engagement in ritual behavior. Uh, this ritual play allows, uh, allows us, affords an individual to engage in inactive analogy so that they can get into that liminal state in which they can, in a perspectival and participatory manner, bridge 
in a very apt way uh, between the world and the self that they are now and the world and the self they want to viably become. Uh, that enacted ritual should also afford anagoge, it should afford the transframing, the re reciprocal anagogic process uh, by which self and world are transformed such that we can go through the sensibility transcendence which will make a worldview uh, viable to us. That combination, that ritual combination of enacted analogy and enacted uh, anagoge is empowered by uh, the cognitive flexibility brought on by an altered state of consciousness, hopefully a higher state of consciousness that gives us a sense of the, in, the increased realness, the more realness of the world that we are trying uh, to move into. So that higher state of consciousness, as we've talked about before, motivates us to go through this radical transformative experience. Now, of course, there are dangers associated with all of this. Um, when we are engaging in this kinds of radical transformation of our salience landscape, when we are putting ourselves and our world at risk, when we are inducing altered states of consciousness, uh, there is a significant chance that we will fall prey to parasitic processing, to bullshitting ourselves, to deceiving ourselves, um, and therefore, it is very important, and this is also part of what uh, uh, was going on with Gnosticism, to build up a community, a, a shared mythology, a shared set of psychotechnological practices, a shared social network of distributed cognition uh, to provide sapiential feedback, guidance, correction, and encouragement uh, for people when they are uh, endeavoring to go through the kind of transformation that will release them from this existential entrapment. So you have some higher state of consciousness, hopefully that has some aspects of being a higher state of consciousness, and that is going to be set within a ritual framing that I've been talking about, and then you want that in turn set within an important sapiential and supportive community that is teaching you all kinds of the relevant skills by which one can bring wisdom, the ability to overcome self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, to bear upon this transformation. When all of that is the case, this is what Gnosis is. It's this kind of deeply transformative, deep per, per, uh, perspectival participatory knowing that is ritually inframed and embedded with a sapiential and supportive community. So, our community. So, what do we have going on here is a project that was addressing the domicide that it was still uh, in, in existence, persisting from the Hellenistic domicide that we were spoken about. It's also, as I mentioned, one of the reasons why Christianity took root, because while the Roman Empire offered a socio-political solution uh, to some of the problems of the ancient world, it didn't have a viable answer 
uh, on its own to the meaning crisis, the domicide of the Hellenistic period. Things like Stoicism had been generated. But Christianity is a significant response. And at the same time, this movement, this Gnostic movement arises. Now, these Gnostics, many of them, not all of them, saw themselves as Christians. They interpreted Jesus as somebody who had brought them Gnosis. And for them, the important thing was not to believe in Jesus, but as much as possible to become like Jesus, to go through uh, this, the kind of radical transformation to be at one with God the way Jesus was. Now, whether or not we believe in that particular mythology, uh, two things we need to note for our purposes in this course. We need to note that uh, Gnosticism and Christianity are deeply talking to each other and informing each other, even though in many ways they'll have an oppositional relationship. We're going to see that both Gnosticism and Christianity are also in a very important dance and intermeshment uh, with Neoplatonism. Now, many people, and I put it out with the examples of Jeep form and therapy and martial arts, right? Many people are seeking Gnosis today uh, because Gnosis is the kind of thing you need in order to bring about a release from the existential entrapment that uh, we're finding in the meaning crisis. Now what's interesting about the Gnostics is they create a mythology for all of this. And I think the best, because if you just read their stuff, it's like, man, it's like if you were strung out on an incredible acid trip and everybody was speaking in reverse. It is so hard. Their stuff is so bizarre and weird and strange. But I think if you pay attention uh, to some of the main themes of the mythology, you can see how it is a mythological scaffolding for bringing about Gnosis. A book I would recommend to you is April DeConnick's book, uh, The Gnostic New Age. Uh, in that, she does some good work at bringing out some of the central themes of this movement. And she also points out how much Gnosticism is prevalent in our culture today, mythologically. And you may say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, many movies, and she shows this uh, in the book, actually have a Gnostic theme. The, the mythology of the movie, and movies are where we go to uh, play with a lot of our mythology, um, actually are, uh, are pretty clear versions of this Gnostic mythology. So what is this, this mythology? So the Gnostics have an idea, and you can see uh, part of it comes from Plato, and there's an influence from Plato. So if you remember, Plato has this idea about the everyday world right, is they're, they're, they, the everyday world is a world like the shadows and the echoes. These things are not fully real, this table, this wall, this pen. They're, in a, in a, in a profound sense, images, right? They participate in uh, the forms. You remember those patterns of intelligibility and realness. Uh, so Plato had uh, uh, a problem uh, which is the forms are basically eternal. So if you think of something like, you know, 
equals mc squared, right? That's not an event. It's sort of timeless and spaceless. And then how does this etern how do these eternal forms, how do they express themselves in the temporal things, the things that are changing here? So basically, how do time and eternity intersect? And so Plato proposed a mythological answer. He proposed that there was a figure, he called the figure uh, the craftsman, the demiurgos, the demiurge. And what the demiurge is, is he can sort of become aware of these because he's a rational agent. And then what he does is he shapes things in space and time in order to uh, make the world of becoming have some reality to it. And so it has some important similarities to the eternal world. And that means that by, pay atten by paying attention to temporal events, we can become aware of uh, these eternal principles, sort of what science does right now. Now, whether all of that um, is true, uh, I think in an important sense it's not true, there's a mythological point here. Plato is trying to understand mythologically the relationship. He's trying to give us a way in imagery and story of understanding the relationship between eternity and time. Now, the Gnostics were influenced by this, but they took this notion and they did something very interesting to it. Because they said the temporal world, the everyday world we're in, is a world of very significant suffering. So remember, they're, they're after the Hellenistic domicide. They're during a period both where the Hellenistic domicide is still in existence and the Roman Empire has caused massive pain and suffering throughout the world. So they're looking at the everyday world and they're seeing all this suffering. They're feeling deeply trapped within it, existentially trapped in the way we've been talking about. So for them, that was very clear evidence that whoever had created this world was either stupid or evil or both. They were looking around the world and saying, look at how much we suffer. Look at how much pain we're in. Look at how much we're trapped. And therefore, what is, what, whatever is creating the structures that we're living in is both stupid and evil. So they, in Plato, the Demiurge is basically a, a, a beneficent being, but in here, the Demiurge very often becomes something like an evil overlord. Now, what's going on here? Well, what they're trying to do is articulate, again, the sense of being trapped and that the socio-economic, socio-cultural, political economic structures that they find themselves in are actually thwarting them. And now when I say it that way, it's like, oh, maybe that's a mythological way of talking about something that 
you might be experiencing. You're, ex you're experiencing existential entrapment, and then when you look out at the patterns of your culture, the patterns, right, the market patterns, the political patterns, you don't feel like they are shaping a world that is going to help alleviate your entrapment. Instead, you feel that they are stupid and evil. And I know from a lot of the research we did for the book on zombies with the work I did with Chris and Philip, more and more people view their, their, their myths, their deeply repeated cultural, political, socioeconomic patterns, not as helping them, but as thwarting their efforts to be free from their existential entrapment, adding to their fragmentation and their suffering. So whether or not we believe in, in, in the Gnostic supernaturalistic way of talking about this, which I don't, we can nevertheless understand what they are articulating. We have this existential entrapment and we have socio-political, socio-cultural patterns that are designed to further that entrapment, further our self-deception, further our self-destruction, keep us enmeshed in modal confusion, or keep us awash in parasitic processing, keeping us trapped, stuck, and stupefied. All right, guys. Let's cover what we just went through. So, Braveki's describing... this gnosis that had come about in the world as a way of understanding and being, uh, not so much a particular theology or spiritual belief, but a, a way style of, of a, a thinking style of, and believing. Yeah, of, of a way of being, a ritualistic framing, uh, supportive community, relevant skills, all these traits, uh, wisdom, um, allows us to overcome BS and self-deception, a methodology, you could say, a psychotechnology that we can employ to achieve deeper understanding. So this is starting to really come about in the times of early Christianity. And he'll discuss the, he discussed the dangers of this radical transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and the dangers are getting stuck in parasitic processing. For sure. Um, yeah. And which is bullshit. the way that we can BS ourselves, the way that we can yeah. self-deceive. And so Gnosis, he settled, so a higher state of consciousness experience surrounded by a ritual framing and then a supportive community around that. Mm -hmm. That's also instructive as well. Yes, provides feedback. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's like... Guidance, yeah, encouragement. That's the framework. But now if you take any of these, like, you know, take any of these layers, like say the supportive community becomes nihilistic mm -hmm. as we, you know... Um, you that know, can happen under certain social, political, cultural circumstances. Yeah, so both... Um, so in this time, they're trying to develop a mythology to explain yeah. these, these early Gnostics. Yeah, and, and both the Gnostics and Plato agreed on the idea of this demiurge that, you know, what, what Plato say, the, uh, the everyday the world is shadows and echoes, and there's an infinite amount of those, and then you 
look at how they express themselves in time and then there's mm -hmm. something that became aware of that and now controls that mm -hmm. and shapes it to the ideal space and time that you know the celestial world like the way you know the world the gods lives in, live in mm -hmm. kind of world the disagreement though ended up happening whereas you know plato thought of this as you know a beneficent uh, doing it for the betterment of everything in the world. The Gnostics really didn't believe that because at the time they were watching everything fall apart. This is post-Hellenistic yeah, era. You know, and this the is, Roman you know, not happy good times. You know, particularly destructive and powerful so, empire. So they looked at the world through like suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't use this word, but suffering and the victims to the suffering. Yeah, they were still experiencing um, that on the edge of this long-term domicide mm -hmm. experience for, during the Hellenistic era where people felt a sense of homelessness in their own countries, in their own villages, in their own homes. Yeah. So if you believe in this myth of this demiurge, now you're going to think, well, either they're stupid or they're evil or they're both. And they're, you know, they trapped us here and all the systems that are being set up here like are a, just to further this stupid evil demiurges uh, kind of whim. yeah well you you know you can see that in a lot of like you know how we pose arguments on what's wrong with the world and what we mm -hmm. should do about it mm -hmm. you know you can see that there's a very in, in so this, i will not say in everybody or even a lot of people but there are people that will be like well you know it's all these systems that are just tearing us down. It's just to further this one group of people, or in the case of the demiurge, bring the demiurge down to the level of people. And now it's this person or this group of people's fault, or it's always the others. You know, oh yeah, the uh, yeah, there's some form that, the of others, others that, that that other group, mm -hmm. and it's not always the same people every time we go through these cycles either. You yeah. know, it, it, we we shift who we're putting the blame on, and then the people pointing yeah. also shift. Yeah. Um, and like I, I can understand why like after the Hellenistic period sure. people would have such a like you know oh there's this thing and it's just watching us squirm like ants in a box and well you they know. people were being taken over multiple mm -hmm. times um, all of these different cultures were being smashed together basically and then their gods were being stood up against one another and people's the young people especially growing up in this world new people coming up you don't know what to believe you don't know what's supposed to be right as the society tries to reform itself into some semblance of stability. So Plato, in his time, was trying to give us the stories so that we can relate to eternity and time and these social, political, and communal situations we find ourselves in. The Gnostics took this a step further. They did see so much suffering, and they did come up with this evil overlord idea. Yeah, well, isn't that, that a... That uh... what creates must be stupid or evil. Well, that, to, to create a world like this isn't that the, an album from uh, Rage Against the Machines the one with that like you know the um, like 1950s propaganda art but like super superman looking kid you know like yeah, yeah I think it's either oh it might have been Evil Empire I don't know either way Evil Empire um, but yeah you know and I guess it like you know when when you are experiencing massive amounts of DACA, like, and this is personally, not just in the whole world, but when you are, it does feel better to have this thing that you can say is responsible for it. And it's easy, even easier when that thing is cruel or stupid. Right. Because if it's cruel, you don't care about it at all. And if it's stupid, well, it's just stupid. Yeah. And this was a time where people believed in gods. Mm -hmm. 
generally. So now this new version of a God to explain the world as it is was one that was born out of our resentment mm-hmm. for what had happened to the world, our suffering, our sense of stuckness. Yeah. And so this is the dark side of Gnosticism itself. So we're trying to separate the usefulness of Gnosis, the practice mm-hmm. of Gnosis, which is absolutely, yeah. you, see, you see that. The having the transformative experience. Christianity, Judaism, yeah. Buddhism, yeah. and yogiism, and Hinduism, and, and you know spiritual systems all across the planet. We see Gnosis-style psychotechnologies, mm-hmm. ritualistic, meditative practices being employed to allow people to achieve higher states of consciousness so that they are motivated to self-transcend into this path, this way of self-transcendence, well, this orientation of agathic love towards the environment and one another so that we can engage in this co-creation we, together. We, we actually, like, even on, like, kind of, like, a stupid baser level, we do this with, like, um, like team-building exercises <laughs> right. where they all go out and they... You know, each have these transformative higher states of consciousness experience. Usually, by the I don't know, they have to like you know you pull something up the hill or, or you all yeah, the ropes yeah, and, and balance and the together. tennis ball in the center. Kind of and stuff. then you're doing rituals. They're literally rituals, and then it's and within a good, community that's trying to work. teach you. So the yeah. framework's still there. It's a, fu- it's a sadly scaled down. And it's not the, down. It's not the frame. The framework is not evil. It's not just or evil. Of, it's just effective. Yeah, it's so, effective. Ritual is, effect, is effective for if, us. If any one of those points, like so, any one of the points from the higher state of consciousness to the ritual or to the supporting community fails or gets corrupted, mm-hmm. the chances of you going down, say, the wrong path with these realizations increases. For sure. So, like, you know, like, for example, say if you're, you know, okay, if you're doing a entheogen-based higher states of consciousness, so you're taking a substance, say the substance is good. Okay, and say the the community of people around you are also good people, and you know, like have gone through stuff. But the setting, which would be your ritual, how you're doing it, and where you're at, is wrong. Then you're going into a bad trip, and it's gonna maybe scare the crap out of you, yep. or make you become bitter. Or even say you have a good a higher state of consciousness experience. The ritual was proper, but the people that you're surrounded with are just icky, horrible people. You know, you can see this in the Hollywood thing. Hollywood practices you know gnostic and hermetic rituals all the time because they're effective it's not a magical thing you know there's a reason why you know every star is raised in a certain way to be a certain way you know like you know like the teen pop star you know first they're the innocent teen then they super sexualize them and then they move Mm -hmm. them on through the system yeah and are there um award events and all that stuff too that's it's the same thing now hollywood has pretty much always been filled with vapid, hollow people that are only looking after themselves. So you're missing that most important thing that nests the other two together. And, well, it's also, you know, well known that Hollywood people join any cult feel-good thing or this, that, or the other and try it out. Like, be the beta testers and all the nonsense. You know, go out to the place and do the thing, and then, you know, this thing or the, the other. Um, that's how cults are made, too. You know, you get a very controlling, restrictive communal system and you move them through these steps this gnostic practice if you will and mm-hmm. then you can get them to think pretty much whatever you want if you're smart enough to craft each feature properly sure, sure. because i don't believe Scientology. i don't believe god's malevolent but i do believe there are malevolent people in the world so oh you know. for sure there's certainly are malevolent intents that happen sometimes and, and again that would be born from resentment mm-hmm. it's funny how you can switch 
from seeing the ugliness of the world and see the beauty and see the helpers and feel gratitude. Just practice gratitude for simple little things and the people and loved ones in your life. And all of a sudden the whole world can brighten back up and be beautiful and be a gift again. Right. So it's really, you know, this thing's pretty open-ended. Gratitude is pretty great. Um, and, you know, just the act of showing gratitude, even just with a little nod of the head or even just feeling gratitude is a lot. Mm -hmm. It is not hollow. It is not false. You can pretend to show gratitude, but you can never pretend to feel gratitude. No. But when you do feel gratitude, you feel like you feel belonging. Yeah. You feel yeah. meaning. And you do, you see the beauty in the little things. It's going to be a leaf yeah. scraping across the sidewalk because you stopped, you took a deep breath, you felt the world around you, you felt the coolness or the warmth of the air, depending on where you are, the time of day, the smells mm -hmm. in the air, the sounds of that present moment. And then something simple as a leaf scraping across the sidewalk or falling before your eyes or a bird flying by or just the way some kids sound as they're playing in the distance and the sounds of cars, something will happen and you will remember how beautiful this life is and it's easy to be grateful and, and yeah. in those moments and it's easy to initiate those moments through gratitude. Well, I think that feeling of true gratitude is kind of like a, a hue of the ultimate light that is God, if you will. Like if you're mm -hmm. to feel like you're resonating that with... fe that feeling you get when you're truly grateful for something, and it really it, it, it may even like bring you to tears and break you down. That is just the tiniest focus mm -hmm. of the light of God. You know, like yeah, too right. much of it would blast you into nothing. You know, they say you know if you see the face of God, you die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like or well, if you see the face of God, you're dead. Yeah, <laughs> there must have been a lot of well, there was a lot a lot of different kinds of Gnostics out there because we know the early Gnostics believed that their self-transcendence came through the example of Christ mm -hmm. and that he was like an answer to this demiurge almost, even maybe for the later ones. And that's kind of how that mix happened in early Christianity with Gnosticism. Sure. And, you know, and, you know Christianity and, and Gnosticism had this, you know, dancing relationship with each other, sometimes antagonistic, you know, uh, particularly, you know, certain types of Gnostic ideals where it's like, well, if you're going to be something, I have to be the anti of that to figure out the something. Mm -hmm. Later on, we'll, later on, we'll learn, I think he goes over this, but we'll learn uh, the idea of uh, synthesis, or what is it? Um, uh, synthesis, no, synthesis is the last, so anti thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So the, oh, right. the idea and then the anti-idea eventually after battling it out you'll get a synthesized mm -hmm. realness yeah. or like con what is it um ab abstract concrete and something else but like um which is kind of the opposite of what christ is christ isn't the thing and it's opposites it's the all things flowing through continuously flowing through it's a way opposed to being a rock in yes the way. it's yeah. it's the way opposed to in the way mm -hmm. or feeling like something's in your way yeah the way is to, is to be the synthesis between the yin and the yang yeah. the interrelating opposites the seemingly yeah. separate the, the, the real the, the the real opposites if you will yeah. opposed to you know our awakening to the, the fact that we are this is, one thing yeah 
is what allows I don't even know how that works. <laughs> well, think about it like this. It, it, that, that is what allows the culmination of perhaps our reason for existence, you could say. Yes. It's the difference between, as we learned earlier on, like the sage between the adult is the adult to the kid, yeah. to the child. Yeah. It's a growing, the becoming. realized master, the okay. realized human. So the full human, the actually truly self-actualized human, yeah. ultimately has transcended its sense of psychological self and its attachment and uh, yeah, its attachment to the temporal realm. It has transcended and is now flowing as one with as the world itself. Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, to it, it's great to want the world to every everybody in the world to experience that, but you can't force people to do it and that you know, like no. That's where I think Gnosticism has really gone bad. It's like ways to use these great techniques to control massive amounts of people to do what you think is right. Or, um, well, like any great power, the psychotechnology can be used for evil, can't it? Well, you know, like a knife inherently isn't an evil thing. You can use it to prep food or you can kill somebody with it. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's just a tool. Yeah. These are just tools. There is no morality behind the tool. Now, my, some tools were specifically... But there are moral people, beings. But we're yeah. not talking about those tools. Yeah. We're just talking, like, in general. You know, they are useful for an ends. And as far as I can see, the ends, being able to create a, a proper worldview and be a participating agent within that world as efficiently as possible is good. However, where it goes bad is, you know, well, whose opinion on what the world should look like and what, you right. know, once they're up there. Yeah. That's where it's like, you can't force people to do it. You just have to invite, invite and inspire them to inspire. be like, wow, I'd like, yeah. that's, that's, that seems to be working out for you. What, what are you doing? What's going on, buddy? You know, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, wow. Well, you inspire love right. and you inspire yeah. uplifting, you inspire gratitude, you yeah. inspire hard work and perseverance and determination and. And uh, you also meet people where they are and their sorrows, and you find the beauty in the sorrows. Mm -hmm. This is how we work as artists and as human beings in our relations. This is how we can live. I, I believe that the optimized human, the best, most optimized human in our current form, is built to be loving in the agapic sense, as Christ and Buddha and Ramana and so many others demonstrated. Well, most I, brightly, certainly, the, the story of Christ is a beautiful emblematic example of pure, unconditional self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. living in concert with this great mystery, but in, in the most optimal way. You can see a human, an individual, and then a larger community, nations in a world operating for long-term survival. That, that word self-sacrifice stuck out for me. So to, to sacrifice, you have to make something sacred. Or yeah. by sacrificing, you make it sacred. Or it has to yeah. be sacred to be worth being sacrificed. We need so to say in order to sacrifice, you really do have to, in a way, respect yourself enough to see mm -hmm. the sacredness within yourself. We need to bring back the sacred, yeah. even a sense of the sacred in the world again. Because you, that's another thing that people are missing, is that what is sacred anymore? If we don't... If we are... We've killed the gods, like like Nietzsche said. We've, in mass, started disbelieving in the in the gods that we grew up with. 
that we handed down for generations. And as we've spoken of before, sure, these all of these different religions that we have around the world have their cultural baggage, and they also have beautiful, deep teachings as humans have been trying to express a relationship with the ineffable. We don't know how we got here. None of us do. And to this day, the wisest sage or religious teacher and the most intelligent scientist still don't have any clear definition of what reality is and how we're here and why we're here and any, any of those basic questions. So here we are still figuring it out together and trying not to throw away the wheat and the chaff, the baby and the bathwater. Like, let's, let's see what we've been trying to figure out here because there is this great mystery. There is something that seems like like god and it does seem to be loving and it does seem that our most optimal state is to be loving so that we can be symbi symbiotic with each other in our environments at least as much as we're able and live long and prosper <laughs> <laughs> what else do you say to that uh, i don't yeah. know man i don't know where i'm going here but this is a uh, this yeah. is about to get into some good stuff though. That's yeah. So where we're at was you know talking about the evil lord overlord aspect and you know yeah the, the, yeah the pitfalls of uh, one how, aspect of we got into how gratitude shifts us. Yeah, is yeah. gratitude is a way that we can shift ourselves from this. Yes, because literally gratitude is gratefulness is great. It's full of greatness. Mm -hmm. It's gratefulness. It's recognizing <laughs> the greatness and being full yeah. of it. Yeah, and thankful for it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. All right, guys, so now we're going to learn about Plotinus. This is really cool here. So for the Gnostics, right, they needed to try and link this to existing mythologies. And here's where they did something that is radical. They identified all the existing gods whether it's the god of the, the Jews or the god of the Romans, instead of seeing these gods as divine beings, they saw these gods as basically the guards of our prison. So they see everything else that people had thought of as previously sacred, all the gods, as actually things imprisoning us. Even Paul was talking about this uh, in the Bible where he talks about powers and principalities that keep us imprisoned. Now I want you to stop and pause because this is a radical idea. This is an idea that there has been something common to all of these gods that must now be challenged. So up until now, right, the relationship between us and them was one of servitude, often bordering on notions of slavery. We were the slaves or the servants of the gods. The Gnostics want to invert that. They want to tell you that instead of worshipping these gods, instead of idealizing these gods, instead of giving in to these powers and principalities, these patterns that are pervasive and profound in the way they entrap us, 
Instead of thinking how we should serve and fit into them, think of this again. Remember the Axial Revolution, don't try to fit into the everyday world, you want to transcend it. Instead of serving and fitting in, we have to transcend them all. They are not divine, they are our prison guards. They may be powerful, but instead, what we need to realize is that there is something in us, they thought of it as a divine spark, that will actually carry us above to the God beyond all gods, which sounds like a contradiction, because, of course, that's what they're trying to get at. The idea here can be expressed using some of the Christian mythology that they were quite willing to... Well, it depends who you're talking to. If you're an Orthodox Christian, you see the Gnostics as perverting your mythology. If you're a Gnostics, you see yourself as disclosing by transformation what's actually available in the mythology. So, for the Gnostics, this god is the god of the Old Testament. Evil, jealous, vindictive, right? Who threatens and bullies people, is, authorizes genocide, um, shows favoritism for no moral reason, uh, is just in, in, and I mean, think about, think about, he, he, you know, he says, uh, the God of the Old Testament, I'm a jealous God, you, don't you dare worship anybody other than me, right? And, and if you do, I'll kill you and I'll kill your kids and I'll kill your kids' kids and all this horrific stuff. And then that God is compared to the God of the New Testament, the God of agape, the God of light and love. And the idea is that God, who's the God beyond all gods, does not want our worship, wants us to reunite with him. He wants us, to, or she wants us, to fully participate I have to say he and she, specifically for the Gnostics, is one of the things they also challenged was the difference between the genders in the ancient world. They're famous for that, of thinking women are as equally capable of a spiritual life as men. So, we are radically not at home because this, this our capacity for agapic love means we have a Gnostic potential. We have the power, the potential to remember, to know that we belong here. We can sense that we don't belong here. We can sense that we belong somewhere else. We know there's something fundamentally wrong here. And then the idea is this, this God beyond all gods, this absolute fullness of being, sends individuals down into the world of suffering to bring us the Gnosis, to bring us this kind of transformative knowledge that will set us free. And what the Gnostic Christians did is they said, Jesus was this individual. So the Gnostics don't put a huge emphasis on the person of Jesus and his crucifixion. Instead, the teachings of Jesus are much more important to them. 
Because what, the, what is going to happen here is Jesus is going to bring us the way of knowing, gnosis of agape, so that we can free ourselves from this. So the, the Gnostics, therefore, don't, don't see the purpose of Christianity as doctrine or dogma. The purpose of it is to give us a mythology that will free us from our existential suffering and allow us to experience this transcendence of the gods. Now this, this inversion... Right, this radical inversion. It's like that's what I mean. It's the culmination. It's the axial revolution that is finally applied to even to the whole mythological framework of the ancient world. And what it means is the the Gnostics have a very and this is one of the things that their their critics often leveled against them. The Gnostics keep churning out new gospels and new stories and new myth because for them it's not about having a final orthodox story, a final orthodox set of principles, it's about having engaged in, participated in, the process of creating the inactive analogies, the enacted anagogy. That's what matters. That's what actually matters. Now, this idea that Spirituality is ultimately about transcending the gods rather than serving the gods. It's very, it's very both pertinent to us today and very radical for its time. Because you have basically the challenging of a, not even a belief, it was just an, a, an unquestioned presupposition that our relationship to the gods was one of servitude and slavery getting transformed into no no the cent the core of spirituality is not worship the core of spirituality is self transcendence core is self transcendence the core of spirituality yeah from the gnostics perspective from not the, to yeah. not to subjugate yourself and work for these gods, be slaves to, be servants to, but to become beyond them. Mm -hmm. um, so what the Gnostics did was to identify all the gods and then basically turn them into prison guards. So yeah, finding the yeah, one right. thing that they all, one characteristic they all share. Mm -hmm. um, the one commonality of all gods, if you will. And that relationship is a slave or servant relationship and they wanted to invert it so yep. we must transcend the god and become the god beyond gods or become to that state yes um, conjoined with that become one with that um yeah they want to say don't worship don't accept the entrapment the suffering don't fit in but transcend these gods are not divine there are prison guards and there's a divine spark in all of us that will carry us to the God of all gods. Higher than all of these little petty, mean, jealous, vindictive, angry gods that have, you know, mm -hmm. the God of the Old Testament idea that 
just seem very genocidal. They, you know, yeah, but it's really just a brutal and uh, ruthless, ruthless neutrality of nature unto humans that we were experiencing and responding to. It that, seems like they're yeah, and you know, and our it's just gonna flood out of nowhere and kill everybody. That's we'll call it our our like societal maturity. You know, yeah. it was at the point where it was we get praised and punished like you could you could take the, hu- the human gods. development yeah. scale like so the first one being only what is praised mm-hmm. and then the next realization is only you you do things because of what's punished and then what is praised and punished and being able to figure out the two mm-hmm. and then you start making decisions for yourself you can track humanity to that like, yep. like t- now we're at the point where we're now starting to make decisions for ourselves like in, and now you know, we're so we're still like still teenagers, <laughs> you know, adolescents, yeah. maybe like yeah. college age, maybe, you know. Um, well, so this they, is not so long ago anymore. We're, we're catching up with ourselves in time, but we're still way back. I mean, if you think yeah. about in our terms of reality, we're still thousands of years well, ago. I think 2000 years ago that it was transitioning from child into adolescent. And yeah. we're now yep. going from adolescent to teenager. Yeah, because the, the New Testament is this beautiful agapic realization of light and love and it's this is the expression of the god beyond all gods that is ever loving and the thing to ever, strive ever forgiving the shooting for the stars you know mm-hmm. shooting and the highest high he she wants us to reciprocate yeah. and so at this time religion was becoming more egalitarian because women were as welcome as men mm-hmm. in the practice of christianity and of course also were the poor and the orphans and the widows and, that, and everyone else had been non-personed in the society of the roman republic and was it the epicureans um who were the one the the philosophers that were first about like you know women children everybody they can participate i believe it was uh, the epicureans so that's you know that was then and now it's mm-hmm. you know the christianity sure. is yeah. kind of Picking up on that. Yeah, so we see the influence of Platonism, and so this is where we start to develop Mm -hmm. Neoplatonism, which came about during this early Christian time. So this is beautiful. Um, It's really really exciting to understand how we got to this point. Yeah, I like this idea. So the Gnostics see God sending people like Jesus into the world to help to share the experience of Gnosis with Mm -hmm. humanity. So the Gnostics really did focus more on the way of Jesus than on the dogma yeah. of, you know, yes. religious rules and this and that. It was really yeah. about self-transcendence, a yeah. process yeah. of enacting anagoge, higher states of consciousness and communion and oneness with the yeah. world. And this idea that it was, like, say, a messenger that mm-hmm. was sent from this higher God that is higher than the wrathful God, the real God, yes. the God of light, yes. the son of the God yes. of light, yeah, sending right. it down to us, you know. Um, so this is a big spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. This is where we get the idea of the devil now. Yeah. The over, you know, the evil Lord, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the purpose of Christianity is not dogma, uh, no. but a mythology a to give us the ability to transcend. It's not, and it wasn't about, so they wrote a lot of gospels Obvious. and other things. So yeah. it's not about the gospel. It's about the point. participation in the crafting of. So this is another level of, of human consciousness yeah. is growing here. Yeah. So yeah. they're more concerned. We're really growing our software basically yeah, yeah they weren't concerned about having like good canon in their story and everything lining up perfectly and good dogma that's like clear concise the idea was participating in the making of it well yeah i mean when you're writing a myth when you're writing a moral teaching mm-hmm. and, and it's a story it doesn't have to be scientifically correct it needs to be 
just a powerful story that you know, has a sense of timelessness and dreamlike quality to it that's, that helps invite us into the liminal realm well, of co-creation. And write a whole because bunch. Because life is an imaginative process. And write a whole bunch more, and they may contradict each other at points in time, so that's not the point. The point is yeah. to participate, truly participate in the making of these myths. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why we tell each other stories and stuff like that. You know, we like to, I like to play Minecraft and other stuff. And I watch people who do really cool Minecraft stuff and will like role play certain things. So they'll get like, you know, like 500 people on an island and, you know, yeah, right. like watching how people do their thing. I was like, just thinking about Game of Thrones. You remember the, what was that one group of guys? Um, the red sorceress lady came from them, but oh, also yeah. there was the good side of them that were these kind of anarchistic, yeah, with the, but with they the worshiped the Lord sword. of Light. Yeah, the Lord of Light. And so well, there's like the two sides there. It's like Christianity with this like dark Gnostic side of it. I don't think that's side. I, 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 don't know. I think, I think he probably wrote it in like, you know, all the old gods were brought together saying that they were, you know, weak and, you know, petty and whatever. And this God of Light will purge all of them. And it is the only one true real God. Yeah, that's yep. definitely yep. a reference to, you know, this period of time, if you will. Um, you know, if, if you're writing stories... Art imitates like, life, man. If, yeah, if you're writing stories like he does, you have to be at least somewhat familiar with this kind of stuff. Yeah, George R. R. Martin's mm-hmm. a big fan of ancient history. Yeah. yeah. And I always, say so, I always say somewhat because, you know, depending on who you are, a little bit of knowledge is like vast volumes of knowledge compared to, you know... What I yeah. used to look into, so... No, that guy put too much on his plate. Oh, man. Because he still hasn't finished writing his books, has he? Not yeah. as far as I know. Nope, I think he's going to let it die, because they went ahead and killed it that, that last that last season. And I'm not a huge fan of Game of Thrones or nothing. It took me a long time to binge-watch it. And, uh, yeah, they just... When you give writers that aren't creative, they're just able to take something from something else and condense it down into... A viewable medium and don't get me wrong there's a certain creative aspect to that but not creative as in like world building and that level of stuff that's it they they ruined it it was terrible it was rushed it felt yeah. forced you could tell the script was ins- spent way too much money inspired by the scene. original artist yeah. you know the author's writing yeah. the books themselves he had given them an idea what a direction of where he was going with it and they had major plot points i'm sure but they still had their own spin on it, and they definitely did that, something with Daenerys that I felt was kind of out of character. Yeah, and did did you also notice that like you know Tyrion used to actually be like witty and eloquent, and now it's just like cock and the ball. The funny jokes. drunk guy. Yeah. Where it was funny cock and ball jokes before, but it was actually witty and Heartful, articulate, sympathetic, understanding. And all the characters were done like that. Um, Good. But yeah, detail. sorry not to go off yeah. on, on complaining. But yeah. But yeah, like myths. Well, you know the. The act of writing a good story and a good myth, just the participation in that is enough. And that mm-hmm. that's what they're, I think. They're teaching they're us what we need to know. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, yeah. shows like that especially, where you see all these different Nobody discordant groups of people to... that suddenly have to team up yeah. together to work together, even though they mm-hmm. normally wouldn't get along to survive a greater foe, a greater danger is very much what we're facing in the meaning crisis, our own capacity for self-destruction. You know, we can we can definitely set ourselves back as humans, and we can set this planet back quite a great deal, and it'll be okay without us. But you know, there's a lot of cute bunny rabbits and kittens out there. <laughs> and, hey, man, young people is a cute is young a young trees and life forms that deserve to live. As you know, is is a kitten cute if there's no human to look at it? I'm saying, 
the same. There's some deep dark rainforest left on this planet that we can still keep alive. And, you know, well, if, if the theory that the Amazon rainforest was actually created by a relatively advanced, like a pharmacopoeia, well, we've mm. built, we've built forests before. We know how to build dirt. We know how to, we know how to purify things. We know how to work within ourselves. Yeah. We're really good at transferring information freely. Yeah. Have you noticed uh, how the environmental movement doesn't really talk about pollution anymore? No, because it's all scam. Sorry, guys. It's they just, just trying just to a scare lot of money people. being made. And money corporations laundering. are finding ways to make money. But yeah. yeah, we're not actually dealing with pollution or the degradation of the rainforest. Anymore. No, that's right. Don't you use microplastics your, in the oceans or any of that. Make sure you recycle all your stuff and then we'll sell it to China or another country that doesn't care and just throws it in the Pacific Ocean. That was mm -hmm. the big scandal when we found out about well, you that. You know where like 95% of solar panels come from? China. China. Yeah, and slave labor. Slave labor, and, and actually. Yeah, actually. Not just China, but slave, oh God. Yeah. We gotta be careful, because we're on a. Yeah. <laughs> but no, and um, that's, that's. Multinational corporations don't seem to really care for the individual and uh, free peoples of nations from which they. Well, sharpen your mind. to their wealth and. Sharpen your mind and, and, and strengthen your reasoning skills so you won't be sucked in by the sophists who will just bullshit you all the time. Because we're, we're, we're dealing with neo-sophists at this point. They're very good at arguing any end of anything. And if mm -hmm. you're just of, you know, like an average person trying to get on with your day, not thinking about like, well, how do I, you know, prevent being sucked into a super salience bullshit and navigate through that, like most people are going to walk and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, they're right. You know, like, I've got some solar panels on my house, and, you know, it does this, or, like, the windmills. Oh, my goodness. The, there's huge... You know how they recycle those things? They say they're recyclable. Those big-ass fins that they got that are fiberglass and balsa wood, they grind them up, and then they burn them to cook aggregate. Okay. So, yeah, it's recycled. It's burnt. It's turned into fuel. I can burn my trash in my backyard, you know? Like, I, I don't need you to do it. It doesn't seem like the worst way to make energy, though. But our sure. ocean turbines but seem like a really good idea. But they don't really tell you, oh, yeah, no, we recycle it into fuel by burning you know, it. No, the oil industry is a pain in the butt. And they've really blocked things like hemp from becoming a mass bio-diesel yeah. fuel source. Um, well, I gotta you know, we're say... using corn instead, and it takes a lot of corn to fill up a gas tank. Like, you can feed a kid oh. for a year off of one tank's worth of ethanol fuel. Well, and you know how much viable growing land you have to take up just to grow corn yeah well, yeah and you can For grow ethanol. hemp friggin anywhere cannabis anywhere well if you know like there's also like with the issue but here big pharma textile industries big oil a lot of things have been well you notice way. the green movement doesn't like like nuclear either and don't get me wrong why hiroshima was terrible, but it was built in a really bad place. And right, it wasn't and built Fukushima kind of was a mess too. Five Mile Island, is that what it does? And uh, Chernobyl, our our technology is so much more advanced at this point. That might be the only way we have though. Yeah, I didn't right like now to produce I'm enough energy for the rest of the world. But... Yeah, because we're bringing the world out of poverty as we speak, and we need to continue that process. Thank God for actual, there's actually some United Nations programs that are doing good, and as much corruption as there is in every single authoritative body that you see on the planet um there are some people some individuals that are doing really good work out there and particular foundations that are doing great work and we have in the past you know 20 years brought half the world out of 
20 or so, I forget exactly the number, but we've brought oh, yeah. the world out of poverty in Actually, very recent history. It's, it's most of the, wor most of the world now people. doesn't live in abject poverty. Yeah. That wasn't the Less case 200 years where most of the world was living in abject poverty. Um, oh yeah, two thirds of the planet, you know, back in the 90s, was struggling to find potable water. Well, now, you know? like, even now, like, with, like, cooking stuff, like, I'd say, like, burn, burn your farts, man. Well, burn the methane that comes off of your poop and your food wastes and all that stuff. Uh, methane is a very clean, if you're going to burn something, methane is probably the yeah. cleanest thing you can possibly burn. But at what cost? So we, we yeah. here in the Western nations that see that we need to be less polluting, we need to be better stewards of our environment. If we all stop using the fossil fuels, what is China? In Russia, North Korea. Well, if we stop like using that, the fossil fuels, we're going to start. They make the vast majority, of particularly yeah. China, makes a yeah. huge proportion of yeah. pollution on the planet. Well, and what we think that we do, no, 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 actually, because they're producing all of everything that we use over here. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that would help is if we stopped looking at the world as if we're under a demiurge's thumb that is the prison like the prison guard and all the systems that we have now as being yeah. a reflection of that trying to hold you down life is hard enough as it is just trying to propagate your genes to the next generation to think of everything as an oppressive system that's trying to keep you down including god Right. Like I do like the, I, I do participate in the idea that like if God is a benevolent God and we are God's children, the idea is for this experience as human to eventually grow to the point that's on par with the God of everything in the universe or above it from whence we came and completely because if you're going to well, be what's just the one thing turning back into. It, yeah, so yeah, really, basically yeah. every iteration ever all at once aware of itself. That's God. But it has to have every iteration ever, and including including every random thing that happens in space that could possibly ever happen in space, and all of that. Yeah. Um, but so we, we need to recognize that our individual nation systems, of course, are works in progress. They're not perfect. Some of them have a long way to go. And, and there's some pretty evil people at high-level positions, but that doesn't mean everybody. But it's, it's not for us evil. to judge; it's for us to improve ourselves from within. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because if you want to see a change in this world, it comes from inside out. First yeah. and foremost, we're not going to see the change until we can actually be the change as people. And if we're easily corrupted, our representatives will be corrupted. Our governments will become corrupted by powerful interests that eventually become more powerful than governments. And the very things that we fear in this world are what we create, you know. Yeah. So we we take the power back by taking back your own personal agency to make decisions for yourself a, and come to a rational, God. reasonable understanding of the universe. And if you can find God while you're doing that, even better. And if you're a person who doesn't believe in it, but you can still find truth and meaning in life, great. You know? yeah, again, right? But you yeah, got to do yeah. it. You're for yourself, and I got to do it for myself. Yeah. And, and it's get, not everyone else's fault out there. It's just life unfurling and happening and unfolding. And yeah. we can't control what happens in the world around us, but we can control how we respond. We yeah. get to choose. You're, you get to choose your emotional state. The you don't have to be offended. You don't have to be resentful. Yeah. You can be loving and grateful. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes there will be moments where offense will happen, and you can choose how to you know, roll through the situation, but well, even if you choose not to, that's still a choice. I don't know who said that, but that's, <laughs> was it that that's not a me -ism, That's somebody else said that, but yeah. Yeah. It's like, 
we know that old adage, what you resist persists, and we keep on trying to resist things to create change in this world. And, you know, I, I really like the Bucky Fuller method of you never create a new system by trying to overthrow the existing, unless you have some scaffolding for something new in place. Basically, yeah. you really need to create a new system that makes the existing one obsolete. We gotta get rid of this system. So it's build correct. it up okay. now. What do you okay, have? you got something better. Start better ways of doing things that will outcompete the current ways. And if you got them, yeah. you know, let's let's use them. The only ones that I know of right now are agape, unconditional love, wisdom practices, collective sense making. Yeah, I, I, I would working think, together to figure things out. I would take a, a good combination of spiritual practices like say like religions and other things and pure unbridled un unbridled Play. capitalism <laughs> with an equal hand and how like people have a very strong spiritual system faith system understanding system but then they have the ability to freely trade with each other so free you can and fair free trade, trade with system. good morals yeah. because you can't just enforce morals like because there's if you don't have morals then you're just gonna be like well i'm gonna figure out a way to subvert that everyone's going to lie so, and cheat and steal and yeah. murder and kill and everything else yeah, yeah. and if there's you got to have some kind of moral groundwork and so we do need so, a sense of the sacred yeah we, we need do, to start need, bringing up need to bringing back that sacred recognize yeah. what transcends us what is ineffable what is beyond our comprehension yet somehow has birthed the beauty of this universe and these lives that we get to experience and find the ways to live in an optimal flow with that great mystery whatever it is it does has granted us with this capacity for lovingness. We have that. We have the access to wisdom. We have our creativity, our co-creativity, and our collective sense-making capacities. So we can do a lot together. We don't have to be pit against one another so easily. Yeah. This game of divide and conquer is getting old. I'm, it's getting I'm, really, really I'm getting old. real tired of it. I'm, I'm, you know? I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm losing my general politeness well, about these things you know anymore. we're all losing friends and family over little political differences and these political differences have become our like religions our sense sure. our whole like sense of reality you know that we're holding on to with our dear life since we have no sense of the sacred anymore no we, te we tend to we, worship that kind of stuff now too if we don't have the sense of the sacred we're going to worship our differences and mm -hmm. our groups and our, our mm -hmm. ideologies and we, we become wor worshipful yeah. within it and faithful to that and if you're faithful to like not to use this this terminology but if you're faithful to a bad master you're doomed you know we don't know if we're under bad masters if we're not self-reflecting yeah precisely. If we're not looking within and we're not challenging our own systems of beliefs we're not challenging our own preferred ideals and the things that we prefer to believe might not be true. It's good to challenge ourselves because if we are searching for that, what is good and true for one and all, then we will find a way. And don't you really want what's true and more good and to, to know? To peace and yeah. So might as well like you know start like make you know make sure that what you're sure of is actually sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We 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 don't have to be so certain about everything. All right, um, that's a good breaking point. I got to. Uh, Use the little boy's room. All right, let's take a Get quick break, guys. We're going to take, take five. Y'all do what you got to do. We'll be right back. We are here. We are back. And so, yeah, let's go ahead and jump back in here. We're going to get into the second half of this series now, and we get into some exciting stuff here. We're going to engage with some 
pop culture that everyone's going to find familiar as we connect with how influential Gnosis has been on our culture, on the world's culture, up to now. So here we go. We're jumping back in now, guys. It's very both pertinent to us today and very radical for its time because you have basically the challenging of a, not even a belief, it was just an, uh, an unquestioned presupposition that our relationship to the gods was one of servitude and slavery getting transformed into, no, no, the, cent the core of spirituality is not worship. The core of spirituality is self-transcendence. Healing and freeing people from existential entrapment and their suffering. And that our mythology and our practices should always be in service of us reuniting to who and what we are. Now we, 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 we love this story. Notice how, first of all, it's still got all the platonic elements. Here are the people trapped in the cave, they're bound, they get the secret the knowledge, right, that frees them so that they can return to and see the light, right? But of course, for Plato, you come back down into the cave. The cave. For the Gnostics, you try to spread the message uh, to as many people as you can. So it has the Platonism. It, of course, has a way of connecting that Platonism to Christianity by reinterpreting Jesus as the embodiment of Gnosis rather than as a sacrifice in whom we should have faith. Jesus is a teacher who provides us with something like what the shaman did and what our therapist does, provides us with the keys to unlocking, right? Unlocking all the ways in which these patterns these sociocultural, political, economic patterns, ways of thinking and being are just permeated into layers of our psyche and ways of being in the world that they just exacerbate our suffering, our existential entrapment and the way it is fragmenting our world and ripping apart our agency. So we, we long for that now. This was Hans Jonas' great insight. We long for that now. So we go to movies that show this, right? So DeConnick goes through several movies that are basically modern portrayals of this Gnostic mythology. Of course, famously, and it brings, it brings all of these elements in, the Christian, the, the, the Platonic, and the Gnostic, of course, is the Matrix. Right? Because... The matrix is this. You're entrapped in a world of illusion. There are evil overlords who are trying to keep you entrapped so you don't ever discover who you truly are, right? But you know, remember there's a scene in the movie, says, you, like you know like a splinter in your mind that there is something wrong and you don't belong, right? That's the matrix. Or you can see a movie starring Jim Carrey, The Truman Story. Notice, of course, the play on words there, right? True man, Truman, discovering who you really are. And he grows up in a world, right, with an overlord that has manufactured it to keep him from ever actually getting his true agency, finding true love, etc. And what he has to do is get 
the knowledge in order to get beyond this God. We keep telling this story because it's a myth. Because it keeps pointing us to patterns that are pervasive and profound and powerful. And we can't quite articulate them and we can't quite know them. But the myth at least gives us a moment of, right, at least narrative and symbolic recognition of our suffering. So the Gnostics are offering a radical form of the actual revolution. Now it carries with it a dark side. They keep showing you with all of this stuff, the, the light side and the dark side of Christianity, right? And you probably could see how there's a Gnostic element also within Star Wars. You're trapped within the Empire with the evil overlord, the Emperor, and you have to get free, and you need to have the knowledge of the Force that will set you free, and blah, 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 blah. Like, we love this and we keep wanting to do it. That's great. What's the dark side of the Gnostic vision? The dark, the dark side of the Gnostic vision is it can, it doesn't have to, and many of the, and many of the original Gnostic writers that I've read it, it's not the case, but it can do this. Okay. This is ultimately a conspiracy theory. This is a grand conspiracy theory. That behind, look, one of the reasons why this is comforting is behind all the apparent chaos and suffering, there actually is some evil overlord. I mean, one of the things that would make evil so much more tractable for us is if it was ensconced within an individual. But this is the ultimate conspiracy theory. There's a whole system that is keeping you from realizing the truth and who you truly are, the true man that you are, and how you belong elsewhere and living another way. And now you say, oh, well, conspiracy. Well, stop and think. Look, what are the Gnostics saying? This evil overlord. Some of them say, not all of them, it's the same as the God of the Old Testament. Who are the people that worship the God of the Old Testament? The Jews. Here's an idea that's now being sown into Western culture. The Jews are part of a conspiracy to keep us from realizing our true heritage. And that is going to turn out to be an extraordinarily dangerous and bloodthirsty idea. Nazism is a twisted, and other people have pointed this out, Nazi Nazism is not primarily a political or even a socioeconomic movement. Nazism is a twisted, Gnostic response of the meaning crisis that was being magnified in the Weimar Republic of Germany. So the, there is a dark side to Gnosticism. So, we should have 
and ambivalent attitude towards it. In order to understand it, we must think of how we can extricate Gnosis from Gnosticism. How can we salvage Gnosis from Gnosticism? Just like how can we salvage agape from Christianity? How can we salvage wisdom from the ancient nomological order? So on one side, right, you can see the dangers. Why did this happen? It's a long, complicated story, but part of the problem, part of the reason is the emerging Orthodox Church, it, is, it wasn't even an Orthodox Church at that time, it called itself the Apostolic Church, the church that thought Jesus was absolutely unique, right, and the point was to worship him, um, and that faith is what was crucial, faith in the sense of believing in him as a sacrifice, persecuted, and I mean that literally, persecuted the Gnostic form of Christianity and drove it underground. And as underground, it became enmeshed with any type of group that was trying to challenge the established order. And that's how it tends to surface again in Nazism. We'll see there are more things that feed into Nazism, but that's all we need for right now. Gnosticism, of course, is also deeply influential in some very important people. So here are three people we're going to start talking about more and more. You've already heard me talk about Tillich. Tillich is one of the great uh, theologians. Tillich talks about the meaning crisis in a classic book that I highly recommend to you called The Courage to Be. And he talks about that the response to that is a way of discovering, and it's clear because of how he talks about symbols, and he talks about transformation, although he does not use the term, but he's talking about Gnosis. He's talking about that the response to the meaning crisis is the Gnosis of the God beyond the God of theism. That what we need to do is discover the God, who of course is not a God, because... It's the God beyond the God of theism. As the meaning crisis destroys the mythology of, right, the theistic myth, the mythology of God, can we discover, rediscover sacredness in a way that liberates us from our existential suffering? This is the core. Now, Tillich thought that Christianity could play a significant role in that, and one of my friends and colleagues, Jonathan Pajot, thinks that Christianity will, in fact, go through this kind of self-transformation so that it can move beyond the meaning crisis. I'm not convinced of this, but I do respect these points. Many of you have heard me already mention Jung. Jung basically was deeply... Jung is to Gnosticism what, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is to Stoicism. Jung is basically a transformation into psychotherapeutic context, the Gnostic mythology. And you should understand why that is not a coincidence. The Gnostic mythology is a way, right, of giving us a, a scaffolding for inactive analogy 
inactive anagoge, which of course are so central to therapeutic processes. The person you haven't heard me mention, and I'll talk about more later, is Corbin. Corbin was very much about trying to recover this kind of knowing because his great concern was that we had lost this kind of knowing and therefore we had lost our capacity for the transformation and the liberation that it can bring about and we can get trapped in these historical patterns that fragment our world and tear apart our agency. So, because they represent the radicalization of the Axial Revolution, there is much to learn from Gnosticism, but I do not, I, I am not advocating an attempt to resurrect it or bring it back. What we need to do is understand, and that's what these individuals represent, and notice that at least one of them was one of the most courageous opponents of the Nazis. Tillich was the first non-Jewish academic to be fired from the Nazis because from the very beginning and consistently he identified them and resisted them. So keep this whole framework in mind. Can we salvage from Gnosticism Gnosis and some of its radical message about how we can reconfigure, how we can have a non-theistic, non-supernaturalistic understanding of sacredness. Can we do that and avoid the conspiratorial way of thinking that can be so damaging and has been? See, one of the things we, that Gnosticism can quickly allied into, right, is that those utopian, oh, they're so enticing, right, those utopian ideologies that give you the great conspiracy theory and tell you that you belong to the chosen few, the chosen race or the chosen class, right, and that what, and violence is acceptable because the system is evil and must be destroyed. I point you to the work of Chris Hedges because he's criticized both sides, right? He wrote a book, American Fascist, about fundamentalist Christianity and its pervasive, right, portrayal of a grand conspiracy. But he also wrote a book on the, the new atheists and how they also represent a utopic perfectionism that sanctions violence. And if you don't believe me, take a look at Hitchens and Harris and the proposals for nuclear first strikes against the Islamic world, etc. So, I'm suggesting to you, and I'm trying to give you an argument for it, how we should have an ambivalent attitude towards Gnosticism. Let's put it back in the historical picture, because I told you about the, 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 the three that are crucial and how they're intermeshed with each other. We have the emerging Christianity. We've seen this by taking a look at right, Jesus and John and Paul. 
and we've seen how it's interacting with Gnosticism. We've already seen how Gnosticism is influenced and influencing Platonism, and in particular, I want to look at Neoplatonism, because it is also deeply enmeshed with Christianity. This triangle is going to be necessary for understanding the final elements of the orders of meaning, the grammar, of your, as I've put it before, of meaning. We've got the nomological order. What is Neoplatonism? By the way... Okay, before we go on here, guys, let's cover what we just went through. So you mentioned the, the Matrix and the Truman Show. Yes, in Star Wars. Mm. Um, yeah, trapped in a false world. There's agents that are keeping you from true freedom, from true knowledge. It's a more gray world. Well, actually, in the Matrix story, the world that they wake up in is green. <laughs> it's green, green to gray. Green to but, gray. So it's, you know, it's the. But it's the false, the shadows. They're not true forms. Yeah. yeah, these stories are pointing out strong, profound patterns, mm -hmm. and that's what a myth is. It points out these reoccurring patterns that, mm -hmm. you know, like every good story we have is follows some type of archetypical mythic arc. Yeah, yeah. Um, and w which is good, you know, we create these myths and they help us learn and understand. Yeah. We don't take the red pill that has now become a common thing to say oh, yeah. yeah you know yeah Neo had awakened yeah. he was the one yeah. he had awakened to his true potential yeah. he had to be it's very Christian in, it, in its influence as well so Neoplatonic Neo the one mm -hmm. comes from Neoplatonism Truman the true man there's an overlord that's keeping him down that's keeping him from true love and from being able to have true agency in the world and so Truman himself has to get the knowledge. He's got to find out the truth and mm -hmm. what's really happening around him to yeah. be able to be a true man. So, and then we got into the dark side of Gnosticism, which uh, the light word for it is conspiracy, grand conspiracy theory. But it leads mm -hmm. us to like so he brought he he moved us through the you know this kind of line, which goes um, the Gnostics that believed in evil overlords, which was the Old God, the God of the Old Testament, who worshipped the old God, the Jews. And then you have the Nazis who think that the Jews have a conspiracy theory to control everybody and everything and keep everybody down and keep the true German yeah. down and, and all that stuff. And that's, you know, that's a danger of having this Gnostic thinking wrapped twisted up in... Dark, yeah, yeah, twisted. Um, Puts it up in a dark way. As a response to the suffering that they were dealing with, because, you know, it's like post World War One Germany was a pretty group horrible of people, place. It blames a whole group yeah. of people. They're super generalized, an entire group of people, and they blame them of something to the point to where they're willing to commit mass violence. Yeah. And that danger repeats over and over and over again in human cultures. You yeah. saw it happen also in the Soviet Union yeah. to great and Solid, Very, you know, saw it in Maoist China. Disturbing extent. Saw it, yeah. uh, Pol Pot in the Cambodian killing fields and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, you know, we're still seeing it today in, yeah. you know, certain places. So, yeah, these these ultimate conspiracy theories that we, we are, they're like BS stories that we try to comfort ourselves. They're a very dark way of trying to find 
and create balance in the world, but this is what happens. So we, we have these positive myths that help us recognize these pervasive patterns that can recur when, social, when society starts to break down to warn us and ward us against mm -hmm. this darkness. And so that, so it is important for us to be ambivalent towards Gnosticism and understand how we may be able to explicate, save the practice of Gnosis from the dark side of Gnosticism, agape yeah. um, from Christianity, wisdom yeah. from the ancient orders, and so on. Yeah. How not to get pulled into the grand conspiracy theory, or the uh, like what you know Paul thought you know like somebody had to die to pay for our sins for us to be forgiven. You know there had to be a sacrifice. You know like so. How and that you just must believe how, that, and that's how you you will be saved. Yeah. So how do we get the agapic love out of say that end of Christianity? You, you get it from following the way of Christ, which intuitively Christians yeah, yeah, a lot so, of Christians still understand. You know yeah, you, that makes sense. A rhetorical. We're followers of Christ. But 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 that that was a thing that happened in the church. Yeah, and so how do we get agape removed from the dogma of that religion? Yes. How do we get gnosis removed from the grand conspiracy theory temptation? Mm -hmm. You know, and well, one way is to, you know, like, yeah, become ambivalent to it, but also, like, get it out of your head that, you know, God hates you and treats you like, uh, you know you're in a little prison cell and like, it's always, you know, that, that whole oppressor versus oppressed thing. Mm -hmm. It's only going to be used against you. And yeah. you know, that club you think you're in isn't a club you think you're in. It's no, a club it's, they beat you with. That's exactly what, it's, what it ultimately is, unfortunately. But, um, so, you know, of course, Gnosticism can go into, you know, Nazism or various forms of socialism, which Nazism is a form. Um, mm -hmm. Then we have three interesting individuals. Tillich, who definitely wasn't a Nazi. Um, they didn't no, like him. he was like the first academic that was of German descent, mm -hmm. right? That they removed. Yeah, and his his idea was. They, I don't know what they did with him. Did, did he say the outcast? Uh, I think he was like he fired, was fired, fired, stripped, stripped of all of his credentials. You know, yeah. what you're seeing a lot now with people who say the wrong things. Um, he anyway, courage to be. Yeah, and they so his. I guess idea was mm. what we were just talking about, you know, like moving beyond. So like the God beyond the God of theism. Yeah. So moving beyond this, well, basically, you know, getting the agape out of the theistic tradition of Christianity and all the rules yeah. related to beyond them. the gods of dogma to the God yeah. way, yeah. the God like way. Yeah. And then Jung, was, the loving way of God, was a, a Gnostic medic, if you will, using mm -hmm. it for the you know, psychotherapeutic, helping the mind, you know. Yeah. So positive Gnosticism is happening here. He's using Gnosis to help with psychotherapeutic transformation, to help enact an anagogue transformation mm -hmm. in people. And Corbin wanted to recover the Gnostic, the Gnostic knowing, the way of knowing that. Gnosis, yes. Yeah, Gnosis, way of not the club Gnostic, but the... The way of Gnosis, Gnosis itself, the yes. practice of self-realization, anagage, self-transcendence. Yeah. And having that type of knowing, an, under, an, under, an understanding through, 
a knowing through experience man it's hard to like put that together because it's like well understand experience went on beyond the intellectual yeah Yeah, indeed they they wanted you to actually have the higher state Mm -hmm. of consciousness to move that that then motivates us through the process of self-transcendence and transformation so resist the utopia exclamation point well yeah yeah, violence i love that so all three of these guys we will see just are all about encouraging us to discover sacredness in a way that helps save us as individuals and save humanity as a collective, save our civilizations from breakdown. And uh, yeah, yeah, we can sell the ideas. Hopefully we can salvage Gnosis and its radical message, the potential that mm-hmm. it enables for us. Hopefully we can break beyond the conspiracy theories like these, these ideas we were just talking about where people start to think they're in a special class mm-hmm. and these other people are the problem and they're what is the, the source of all of our ills and yeah. violence must be inflicted against them. Well, and, and you can go two ways about that too. Um, so either it's a special class that <clears throat> deserves to inherit the world and somebody's getting in the way. Sure. Or it's a special class that is uniquely persecuted by some system that needs to awaken. This is where you get, you know, the, the proletariat versus the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. You know, really, the, most of the bourgeois were just like, you know, farmers that finally got out of serfdom and were able to like employ people and buy a tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, you know, um, so you have a the proletariat would be the the oppressed Mm-hmm. meager people and the only reason why they're poor and they can't afford anything and they're you know just basically slaves to the rich farm owner you know the farm because owners. the evil overlord right it is, yeah. yeah because and even if the farmer isn't the evil overlord it's still participating in this system to make sure the evil overlord maintains their position and then what ended up it happening just starts condemning everything trying to find some monster to pin it on well this utopic vision of everybody can be great and have everything they want and just feel perfectly fine gives you a pretty good goal to say okay I want that so violence is fine and we can do this and then you become the evil overlord mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and you then know, it just repeats and yeah you know like the, the Soviet a Soviet is a council so you have a council of people that are the evil overlord. It's no longer like a single There's person. a central authoritative body there yeah. that is going to rule on how we're going to find a way to distribute everything yeah. well, perfectly yeah. equally across, yeah. regardless of who does the most work or who invents what or this or that. And But really you get more if you're just a party member and if you're a higher member within the party you get even more. So then everybody either wants to be a party member or... Well, if you're not, uh, you're mm-hmm. the lowest rung on the ladder and you are to be despised because how dare you not be a part of this party? Mm-hmm. You got to be a part of the group. Yeah. yeah. You can't mm-hmm. be an individual. Because we wanted this utopia. And even though, you know, like... Well, you know, maybe we can achieve something like a fair distribution of the commons together. But it's not going to be through the systems that we've tried already that have killed hundreds of millions of people. And we have our systems today. We have you know, easily corrupted and imperfect free market systems, but they're a huge step above what humans were experiencing prior to free trade, where most of us weren't even allowed to trade and we just were poor serfs. And that was the 
serfs or slaves. And, and you, that was and you might have history for millions of years and all yeah. over. And you might have a pretty decent life if you've got a good, you know, like lord. If you're a serf or master, if you're a slave, said millions of years, thousands of years. Well, you know, it's long time. It's long enough. Long enough. Long enough. Yeah. But like, so yeah, that's you know, we're finally at a point now where we can truly embrace our own agency mm-hmm. in the world. We came up with systems of um, self-governance. Unfortunately, we've allowed ourselves to become corrupted, or representatives to become corrupted. Well, we became lazy. And, we and stopped interacting. Yeah. We stopped participating. Even to recognize that, like something like corporatism, and multinational corporations that see themselves as beyond the nations from which they spring, do seem to be kind of taken over things mm-hmm. on the planet. Uh, that can be another conspiracy theory. And we got to remember, we are humanity. We are we are this planet growing itself and it's all of us you know that the real revolution begins with him i just you said humanity and i got the image of a manatee with like a top hat Mm. like his name's hugh and he's a manatee humanity ah humanity we are humanity yes yes um yeah sea lion barks in the background well you know we do need to start recovering you know, things from the past, whether it's agopic aspects of Christianity or the gnosis with the Gnosticism and, you know, even go even further back and try to get what we can. Um, but that requires us to participate in our yeah. thinking. Like, I think at the, I think that the greatest threat to the world right now is how comfortable we've gotten with allowing something else or someone else to do most of our do thinking for, of for us yeah. and most of our reasoning on most of our reasoning wrong. even our moral reasoning yes yeah, yeah. Like, which is particularly really dangerous because that well now I'm, seeing, one. I'm seeing it on the tv so it's okay to say those things no yeah. it's not you know it, it, it's okay to like you know i saw it on the internet it's okay to you know stand out in traffic and you know glue myself to the road or whatever it's like no it's not you're not doing anything get out of the way dummy you know oh but you know i keep seeing people do these things and you know okay, sometimes that might be the thing to do it depends on what you're doing it for really i mean but that's that's playing the road if you get run over i'm not going to shed a tear i'm sorry that's just you know this dangerous well, but when you're in a system of self-governance I, I, like ours you can actually well pre-plan your protests so there's can, well, there's also far more effective ways than just gluing yourself to things. That well, I mean, provide. Martin Luther King had to lead people across a bridge mm-hmm. at the end of which they were going to get severely beaten yeah. and they were going to take blows without retaliation yep, to show their agopic love. So sometimes there there are cases, well, but, but the way that but they went about I think, it, I think, we're, getting, I think we're getting beyond the point I was trying to make. said, know? this is how we're going to be yeah. equal is what's through love, I, right? I, yeah, I want to I wanna just make sure I don't lose the point that I was making. <clears throat> We need to participate. We need to not just like, you know, the reason why people follow Martin Luther King is because they're all participating. They're all talking about it. But now we don't do any thinking. We just hit a button and we get food ordered to us. We turn on a thing and it tells us what we need to think. And you you notice like when you have conversations with people, you can almost predict their responses because. Or you hear them saying things that are coming from the. This news station or that news, news station. station or this article that came out and everybody starts buzzing about it. So then everybody's starting to recycle it. And and then, you know, to a certain extent, we should, you know, enhance, you know, enhance our cognitive distributed cognitive network. 
Sure. But we should pay attention, but but you need like you need to do that with people who are paying attention because if you just you gotta look at multiple sides of every story too and and without a preference for any one ideological perspective just to try and find out what is sure and true as as well as you can and you can do this with christianity and gnosticism to find those core nuggets and bring it back out and do it you know with buddhism and all the other ways it's just I mean, engage in those actual the, the practices that we have found to be true and good for one and all, because there are ones that are time tested and proven. We know that anagap or I'm sorry, agapic love is tried and true. Unconditional love works. That makes the best kinds of human beings, and it helps us know how to act in every situation. Meditation helps us recognize our presence and our oneness with everything. Yeah, you know, and contemplation helps us. Be able to delineate between what is useful and good. Well, ultimately, we it it we need to ins- maybe inspire other people, but get more people doing this and stop being you know intellectually and mentally lazy. And towards just blame, yeah. Well, and resentful and blaming the world outside without engaging in the world honestly and lovingly as we can, and with you know good faith intentions with for everybody out there. You know, we, why are we judging people? based off of the group that they're in before we even get to know the individual. Why are we doing that? Yeah. Why are we why are we recapitulating these old ways that were dark and evil? Yeah. You know, we know that it's wrong to racialize people. We we know that it's wrong to be bigoted and to view and overgeneralize, you know, whole swaths of human beings, painting them with very low resolution labels. Well it sounds like you watch Fox News. <laughs> Um, no, but thank you. You know, I yeah, hear that no, all the time. Oh, you sound like one of them. And I was just like, um, that's what do you mean? Fox, what do you mean to CNN to CBS? Yeah, to NBC, well, that's what I try to tell them. I'm like, us. I'm like that. That's all the same crap to me, darling. I, I don't know. <laughs> Heaps of crap for a long time. Yeah, I don't and watch. It just gotten worse. I watch it. Decades. I watch it's it like. Worse. I watch it like you watch all of them. A, a disgusting bug that's trying to get into your house. You want to know where it is so it doesn't get to your house. I don't watch it for entertainment. I watch it to see what it's doing. See what it's telling people. Yeah. Yeah. And that. Then, and yeah. sometimes they're covering a hurricane or something that they can't be particularly biased about. Yeah. You know, and so sometimes, you know, like every, even the bad ones have a good take every now and again. So it's always good to catch the good take when it's there. It's, it's helpful. A way of navigating reality right now is to find the good faith actors from liberal outlets, conservative outlets, progressive, anarchistic, wherever, find a bunch of sources, find the good faith actors within, you know, the journalists out there that are doing mm-hmm. work that you can tell are honestly inten- intentioned and they just have their particular yeah. perspective. But look for the ones that you can clearly tell are reliably reporting actual e- information well, it's and good. telling you what they saw and then say, okay, now this is my opinion about it. And don't be so quick to trust your own judgment because they utilize multi-billion dollar and decades-old psychological manipulation techniques nowadays to sell you everything from toothpaste to your belief system. So be wary. It's very easy for us to get lied to. Well, it's good that you said that because, like, so we can have a higher state of consciousness very easily and very cheaply nowadays. And we have the rituals and we participate in them, but what we've found ourselves lacking is a supportive community that is also well-versed in these, you know, wisdom traditions and have, you know, good hearts, good hearts, you know, 
um, and rebuilding that, that that outside layer because that's yeah, really what's degraded. We still have the rituals. Communities need to know how to navigate these new times. Our neighbors, one another, we need to be able to look out for one another. Yeah, and start talking about like stuff, you know, like this. Like if you're the type of person that finds this stuff fascinating. I'm, it might take you five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different people, but eventually you'll find one that you can really start talking to, and then you got two people talking at this place, and you're hanging out at the bar, you start talking, and then somebody else will go, oh, sounds interesting, and then they get involved, and then it starts building. You this know? is how we stitch things back together, yeah. because right now nobody agrees on anything. Mm-hmm. Anything. What are you talking yeah, about? We agree on that's everything. That's not a very stable structure for civilization, and civilization... You know, it's a growing process as well. You know, we got to continue to build the scaffolding of the new systems that will make the existing ones obsolete, whatever aspects of them are not serving the widest variety of people as well as possible. We can only figure that out together. We can't do it by demonizing and uttering one another so consistently as we have certainly been doing these past few years in particular. Yeah. All right, before I start yeah. grumping and griping, yeah, let's, let's move on. I, 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 I could uh, really start opining here. Well, it's, um, see, this is why <laughs> we, are, we are seeking the guidance and the, the assistance and encouragement of Professor John Burbaby because he's worked yeah. very hard on with his colleagues on finding a navigable way for humanity in these times. Yeah. All right, let's jump back in, guys. Here we go. Platonism is also why the main character in The Matrix is called Neo, for Neoplatonism. And he's often referred to as the one because the one is the central thing within Neoplatonism. Again, there's a reason why all of these mythological patterns keep being so attractive to us. So Plotinus... Let me give you an analogy. I think this is a helpful analogy. Scientists right now are trying to integrate quantum mechanics and uh, relativity, the two great theories. And if they, if they come up with it, they'll have the grand unified theory. Einstein tried and failed. Uh, many people think they've had an answer, and then it, it, it collapses. Um, by analogy, Plotinus is the grand unified field theory of ancient spirituality. Because what does he do? Well, he takes Plato's spirituality. He takes the whole idea of anagoge, right, from Plato. He takes Aristotle's theory, the whole Aristotle worldview, the theory of knowing, Right? The theory of the structure of the world. We've talked about that. And he takes from the Stoics that whole therapeutic project. Right? Overcoming modal confusion. And what he does is he integrates them together. He integrates them together in a powerful way. How does he do that? Well, he talks about, first of all, he says, well, well let's, the thing, 
well, you can start anywhere. You can start in any one of these places in Plotinus's writing and then get to the other two. It's, it is such a powerfully integrated system. And when you're reading Plotinus, it's not like when you're, it's, you're not just reading an, an argument. You're also undergoing a spiritual exercise that is trying to transform your state of consciousness and your cognition. So, what's the main theory here? Let's start here. So, if you remember, you have Aristotle's conformity theory. We know something, right? Remember this, by conforming to it, by sharing the same structural functional organization with it. Right? And then, Plotinus says, oh, wait a sec, Aristotle also has sort of levels of being. And we talked about this. We talked about at the lowest level, right, there's pure potentiality, and at the highest level, there's pure actuality. And we don't need to get into the metaphysics, but here's the idea. There are levels of reality, levels of realness. As we know, and this doesn't mean intellectual, as we, like, this is participatory, this is very much like Gnosis. And he's in discussion with Gnosis. We know that Plotinus have, has Gnostic students. He's also critical of them. But, right? but this is not just intellectual knowing. This is deeply participatory knowing. As we make these, and think, listen to my language, as we make these levels of reality viable to us, as they become livable to us, right? we conform to them and we change. And this is Eric Pearl's brilliant idea. Right? All of his stuff is so good, right? As we conform and make this level of reality real to us, we're conforming to it and we're also moving to a higher level of the self. As we conform, we're also altering, and this is the anagogy of Plato, right? We're altering what level the self is at. And of course, as we alter the level that the self is at, we're more capable of living in that higher level of reality. What this does for us is it helps us deeply remember the being mode, who we really are. Let me try and do, put this all together with an example. What is it that makes something real? I mean, think about this. Think about Socrates here. Right? Socrates, like, what do you mean by real? Like, we, we care about whether or not things are real. Like, it really matters to us. Look at the word really. It really matters to us. And yet, what is it that makes something real? How much time have you put into that? Because if you are driven by a pursuit of realness and you don't understand what it is, if, you, if it's something you're pursuing and you don't understand, remember what that is? That's the gap of bullshit. Okay, so, what makes something real? Well, and, and notice for Plotinus, and again, Eric Pearl, make, especially in his book, uh, Thinking Being, uh, 
just a fantastically brilliant book. Can't recommend it enough. Right? But it's not what makes something real, it's how, how do we also sense it as real? So it's both what structurally, functionally organizes it to be real, two sides of the worldview, and what makes, how do we sense it? How does it make us be able to sense it as real? And here's the answer. And, it, and it, it, in some sense, it's basic. In another sense, it's, it, it's, it's profound. What makes something real is how one it is, how integrated it is, how much it is structurally, functionally organized. So we treat the object as more real than the shadows because it's more structurally, functionally organized. That's talking about the object. What is, what is it to understand something? Well, here's a bunch of separate things, and when I understand them, I find how they're all one, how they can all be integrated together. When I understand something, I understand how all of its parts are integrated together. And then what we do is, okay, these things have been integrated here, and then, oh, and I can integrate these here, and, I can, and the, the, this is more real, what's one behind all of these various things. And then I can, of course, find what's underneath all of this, and what's underneath this, and what's underneath this. Things become more real to us as we integrate them together, and they're more real as things as they are integrated together. So, as we try and find the deeper underlying principles that integrate things together, we become more integrated together. And we, we, we become more real. We are realized. It's, 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 we're, the object, we're getting to what's more real, and we, as we become more integrated, more actualized, are becoming more real. I'm becoming more integrated, and you, you can see this is Plato's anagoge, right? The inner conflict within me is being reduced. I'm becoming more real as I'm becoming more integrated, and that is allowing me to make viable and real these more integrated, deeper levels of reality. And then the whole thing spins anagogically. And what I have is I move from where things are only potential, they don't have much form, like in Aristotle, all the way up to as having the greatest structural functional organization they can. And all of this isn't just, it's not just a theory. It's a change in my existential mode. I am becoming more real. That's why I use the word realization. It's simultaneously a making more real of the world and me and becoming more aware of what's more real. But what, what is it? What's down here? Or up, depending on which way you want to draw these lines. What's, down, what's here? Well, it's got to be, like, it's got to be, right, the principle that makes everything else real, that integrates everything together. It can't in any way be multiple. So Plotinus calls this the one. He doesn't mean the single. This is that by which 
Reality is realized and our mind realizes reality. Totinus uses the metaphor of light. Just like light is itself invisible and makes everything seeable, the one is not anything we can ever know. You can't know the one because it is that by which everything is known. It is that by which everything is. So how do you ever reunite with it? If you can't know it, if it is beyond all possible thought, because thought breaks things apart, if it's beyond all possible, how do you know it? You can't know it. You can't have it. You can't have it even in thought. You can't have it even in the most beautiful theory. You can't have it. The st you can only be it. You can only have gnosis of the one by being one. So at the, epit at the height of Plotinus's system is a, is a higher state of consciousness, an awakening experience. But notice, it's completely integrated with the best science and the best scientific psychotherapy of the time. There is no deep division in Plotinus between spirituality, science, and therapy. They are all beautifully, mutually supporting, interwoven, and meshed together. It's the culmination of everything from the Greek Axial Age. Next time I want to talk about how all of these currents, Christianity, Gnosticism, and Neoplatonism, are going to be taken up by Augustine. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Neoplatonism, Neo is the one, one, the one is central to Neoplatonism. The reason these, myth, these mythological patterns are so attractive to us is because they help us understand and conform to reality. Yeah. So, Plotinus or Plotinus or Plotinus? Plotinus? Uh, Plotinus, yes, the I is an I. Plotinus um, is the grand unified field theory of ancient spirituality yeah he's the guy that brought all the different methods together yeah, from plato aristotle and stoics yeah yeah um neoplatonism gets to play so you take, yeah, you take the anagogy from plato knowing from aristotle uh overcoming modal confusion existential crisis um from the stoics integrates yeah. christianity gnosticism and neoplatonism yeah, so as you, spiritual exercises. Sorry, go ahead. As we attain, you know, the livable viability of the different levels of Aristotle's level, um, levels of being, realness, you know, as you go up in mm -hmm. levels of realness, we can so we can form and move into a higher level of the self, yes. which helps us remember the being mode. Mm -hmm. And it then starts the Yeah. 
Okay, we level up the self. The, we change reality and ourselves as we level up the self. We become more capable of living that higher reality. Yeah, so what is real and yeah. how do we sense what is real? Um, and, you know, the, the realest of the real is when we can see the one, you know, you got, you know, a good way to explain it is like, you got dash marks, right? You got dash marks, and then you put one, two, three, four, slash, group that into five. Yeah. One, two, three, four. All of these components, when five. we understand them together, they understand, okay. they, they make yeah. something new. This one whole thing clear, so like you're looking at the components of a scene or a car, whatever it is, you learn how those things, what all those components are, you get a nice idea of this one thing. So this oneness is inherent in our understanding <laughs> itself. Yeah, it's the structural, functional organization oneness as opposed to mm -hmm. um, singular oneness. Mm -hmm. Instead of being one thing, it's the oneness of all the things together. You know, there's the chair's legs and its back and its seat and the person using it as the chair and, you know, that, that end of oneness as opposed to, like, oneness being one singular grain of sand. Right. Um, right. And this gain in the realness that we allows us to be more integrated, more actualized, become more realized, more real ourselves. The inner conflict reduces and makes more viable those deeper states of reality. We move from potential to high actuality, to high structural, functional organization with our environments. And I, I like how he said, becoming more real and aware of what's real at once. Basically what's happening. That by which reality is realized and our minds realize reality is the one. It is that by which everything is known, so we can't know it. You can only be it. You can only know it by being it, being as one. Mm -hmm. And we're becoming more real. Mm -hmm. What is it that is said to you? Welcome to the real Neo. Welcome yeah. to the real Neo. That, that may not be the exact quote, but you know, when Neo like first wakes up and you know, Morpheus is sitting there looking over top of him, you know, mm -hmm. he's like all blown out because he's, his eyes never seen light and he passes out again. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the movie is a powerful, powerful metaphor. And we are so attracted by these stories. They really strike us. Like, the, the Truman Show struck me deeply. It's one of my favorite movies. First Matrix was amazing. And uh, Star Wars, of course, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. And it goes on, you know, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. there's so many other examples. Actually, uh, that movie uh, Maze Runner oh, is yeah. a good example of, you know, moving through and figuring out what is real, you know, because mm -hmm. they're quite literally in the center of a maze and they have to send people out into it to understand it, and they don't know why they're doing it, and they don't know what's in the outside world, mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they don't realize that, you know... That one has aspects of, like, Logan's Run, yeah, and the yeah. world, and all kinds of stuff wrapped together. 1984, I was thinking about that during this episode, because it was Winston's job, the main character, main protagonist in that story, to update the news, you know? And so he's always just, like changing history like he's yeah. literally like cutting out the truth and changing it with this new truth and this con that was what he did and think about how verbake is like the opposite of that right now he's literally trying to help us save language and our understanding because we need an agreed upon understanding we can't look back at history and have some misunderstanding of christianity and gnosticism and all of that 
if we're going to continue being able to navigate, because there's wisdom there. That yeah. it was. We should be wary of being contemptuous towards mm-hmm. history as well. No. Because yeah. then you lose so much of what was actually useful and beneficial to humanity. It's just humans trying to figure it out, you know? And you know what? Yeah, humans do do cruel things to each other and have done terrible cruel things in the past. But to say, well, the past was way worse than now is, well, guess what? You're going to make yourself a fresh new hell to contend with what you think the past mm-hmm. was. You mm-hmm. know, like... You got to be real careful about, uh, you know, viewing everything, all, excuse me, viewing everything in history with our modern sensibility glasses on. Yeah. You know, because we're lucky to live in this modern or postmodern world of, you know, like you can turn on the tap and get clean water. Oh, yeah, we're in the post postmodernism now. Yeah. Yeah. The beyond modern. Yeah. It's, we're very much in a liminal stage. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Actually, there's a whole art phenomenon or um, phase shift called uh, lim- liminal spaces, where they're like they'll take pictures of things or manufacture pictures, which are like hallways and places where you, you know, transfer yourself from one end to one place to another, like a hallway. Mm-hmm. You, you you don't hang out in a hallway; you move through a hallway. So there's this whole art trend called liminal spaces, where they take you know, these pictures that make you feel uncomfortable and uneasy because, you know, something about a space that you're supposed to be moved through, but it's just that space in isolation makes you feel uncomfortable. And maybe we shouldn't be sticking around in this liminal space that we're in right now because it's making us well, uncomfortable. The, the liminal space can be whatever we want it to be. We're just imagining the wrong games to play right now, it seems. Yeah, well, we're, we're moving through. There's better games. We should be yeah. moving through. You know, well, we utilize the, the liminal stage for our co-creativity, mm-hmm. for our role-playing and, and trying things out sure. and all of that. But, we, yeah, living in a matrix reality, thinking that that reality is, is true. Well, you know, it's funny because it's even become a fad to think oneself, think of oneself as woke nowadays. And I feel like maybe we're better off just engaging in an ongoing process of awakening and never be certain that we're ever done being uh, woke. We're always wokening. When I first started hearing <laughs> that word being used, like, as far as, like, oh, yeah, that's woke, bro. It was the... Uh, you just figured out everything that everyone else before you was wrong well, about. It was, that's amazing. The first time I ever heard that word, it was the coffee shop's we've owner's... we've doing that for generations together. It was the coffee shop's owner's son, and, you know, I said, you know... I don't know, something, you know, whatever, smartness-like. And he was like, oh, that's so woke, bro. And I looked at him like, you shut your mouth. And something told me that that whole woke thing. And I looked at him and it was like, not woke, waking up. Uh, You're never done. Yeah. You don't ever think you're done. Because then you'll be willing to do things uh, to other people if they're not where you want them to be and so on and so forth. And and things that are unfair and cruel and violent and probably not, you know, good for the collective health and of you, the species and planet. And if you're the type of person where you call other people woke and you're like, oh, they're woke, I'm red-pilled, I'm fine. Yeah, you're you're pretty much woke too. So, like, it's all it's calm a lot of different down. versions. Just calm down, everybody. Certainty just, out there. And it's like... <laughs> yeah, let's be a little less yeah. certain with everything. We're, and we're all very judgmental. It's not on the same path that we're on. Not on just not recognizing that we're all just friggin' human beings here that have been influenced in different ways, but we can and are certainly able to navigate 
in this road together. Well, we're stronger when we come together, even if we're very diverse and different. You know, unity and diversity is, as the Greeks discovered, is quite empowering for a culture once it gets itself together and gets on the same page. And the same page is not agreeing on what is real so much as just the orientation to be willing to figure that out together. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, like, let's, we need more minds let's have fun life. asking questions again. Yeah. You know, it yeah. seems like nowadays, like, you ask a question, they're like, shut up. It's like, but, you know, like, what is that? What is this? Why are we doing this? What does that mean? What actually happened? Who, what, when, where, why, and sometimes how? You know, yeah. Like, we're not going to create equality by bringing down any group. <laughs> no, you're just going to create a lot of resentment. That that's we have yeah. to ennoble the individuals. Yeah. I get that there's like filthy rich people out there that aren't probably doing much good for people on the planet. But how do we outmode them then? How do we inspire the wealthy people that start being maybe more. have somewhat good hearts to be stewards along with us of a better oh, world? Wealthy people are easy to control. You just gotta hit them in their pocketbook. And the best way to do that is re-embrace the being mode, figure out what you need to actually truly be, gear yourself and those that are around you into this mode, like gear, like literally shifting, gearing into this mode. Um, the richest people in the world will follow along. You know, like, you know, rich people, like really, really super wealthy people, they do the stupidest things because they think that everybody else wants them to do that or it would be advantageous to do that you sure. know that whole like get, go woke uh, get woke go broke thing mm -hmm. uh, like all these like suit like disney is like dying like it's it's it'd be sad if i liked disney uh to see what it's doing but it's just like well we should do all the stuff and just put all the stuff in here you know that like all the woke stuff that everybody wants us to do and you know, all this stuff, and then everybody, even, like, people who are like, yeah, I'm woke, and I still think this is garbage, because it's yeah, not good, yeah, which yeah. is not good. Bam. Well, those are some of the most powerful people on the planet that are very smart people, and they did a bunch of dumb stuff. So, like, let's take some credit, like, instead of being like, the rich billionaires and billionaires, they're, like, they're just as dumb as we are sometimes. We can't outmode you know? every power system on this planet if we work together. Yeah. Create new systems that outmode them. Yeah. You know, there's such things as, like, Bitcoin... Yeah. are helping some nations right yeah. now. And, yeah, that kind of puts everyone on a whole different game, on a whole new playing field, if played out correctly, um, or what that might inspire. Yeah. And, and, you know, if it's not Bitcoin, then it might be something else. But the idea of trying to create non-corruptible ways of trading together freely is a good idea for human beings. Yeah, whether it's whether it's monetary value or information value or wisdom value is that blockchain this, check and you know the trading freely of systems of governance to keep track of the politicians and where the money is going and coming from you know i think for some reason our light is turning into oh strobe. yeah i think it doesn't like this battery pack uh right on the battery packs get a little too hot for it all good all good it's getting tired. I'm getting tired. Yeah, we're at the end of our notes here anyway. Yeah. Uh, so we just talked about how Plotinus really was the culmination of the Greek axial age. And this now takes us to Augustine, which we'll be begin getting to know in our next episode. Yeah. Thank you guys for 
tuning in, joining with us on this learning journey with John Verbeke and this immense lecture series. We just finished episode 18. So we got, what, 32 to go? Not We're too almost bad. halfway there. We're coming up on 25 here, so we'll have to have a big halfway party. Yeah, do a uh, reflections party where we get a little schwasty and try to get through our notes. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> for four episodes. Yeah, right. For three or four episodes. <laughs> People seem to enjoy this, though. So. Uh, you know, it's it's fun. It's like our brains, you know, like defragging and trying to like get all of this together in a reasonable, plausible fashion that makes the most sense. And you know, like you know, we all interpret it, interpret base information ever so slightly different. So it helps yeah. to have all the rest of it to kind of you know like round everything out and like, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, that. Yeah, we're, we're here to engage in this ongoing brainstorming session with all of you out there, with as much as humanity out there that is also engaging on this journey, in, on this great project uh, mm. without us even knowing. There's a lot of us out here, and it is possible for us to help usher in a new age of awakening versus uh, a new age of civilizational breakdown. We've, we've been through that on this planet, and it don't look pretty. And it's already, you know, kind of ugly out there, and you, you all know how it is. What's that know? from uh, the Green Mile? I'm just tired, boss, of how ugly people are to each mm. other, you know. Yeah, man. That's what broke John Coffey's heart, is how ugly mm. we are to each other. Think about John Coffey. What was a good series do? of books. When it came out, Stephen King, like, released them episodically. And they, there's like six little mini books as the Green Mile was, was released. I remember getting each one of them as they came out. And that was a really powerful story. They did a great job with that movie. What a, what a power! Yeah, that story, man. That, that's one of the very few movies that's that actually make me cry. Yeah, oh, yeah I guess it. You can tell a story. We need more myth makers in the world. Yes. I don't even really agree with all of King's politics. Entirely, but no, but see good intentions, you know, that's what we've got to see in one another. Oh, that's that's the interesting thing. Like, the baseline archetypical stories and heroes' journeys and all that stuff. If you are to tell one like that and write a good story, it kind of molds your reasoning and thinking that way, even if your other, you know, say political thinking is different. And the only reason why I think Stephen King's political, like, is like. You know, back 10, 15, 20 years ago, we were all just like normal liberal folk. And then something happened and something invested. people went crazy. You know, we yeah. started... Yeah, what I see today is not liberalism. It's mastery. It's not even true what we thought of as progressivism, you know, 10, 20 years ago. It's, it's, so, it, it's mass um, derangement. All different weird priorities, yeah. All, we're not trying to help the poor and stop war anymore. It's, it's a different game. We're, yeah. we're acting like we're into that stuff, you know. That, that's what the group around us seems to think too We're it's all signaling everyone's just trying to signal I'm a part of the in crowd instead of you know what are we doing what the hell is this in crowd and what are you doing what are we doing there's a cliff there why are, why are we ostracizing everyone yeah. why are we outcasting people you know what why are we trying to censor we need to be able to talk things out even the most uncomfortable difficult things because they're going to fester otherwise yeah yeah you got to bring the monsters out into light where you can dispel their power, call them out, and prove their BS to be wrong in front of everybody. That's how it's done. 
Yeah. And do that to yourself as regularly as possible. You know, the self yeah, self Socratize yourself and, and don't don't go light on yourself. Yeah, you know? use that inner Socrates. We can do the same. Yeah. We can at least do the best we can. Be grateful of what we got while we have it. And be optimistic, pessimist, or pessimistic optimist, but don't be too, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're in the post post optimism stage here. We're we're being, or or you could say we're being uh, pragmatic optimists. Yeah. In that sense, is opt- optimism is like an engaged art that we can take part in, just as hope is an action. So I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys once again for joining us in this. You know, what else, what else are we going to do to get a sense of a handle on these times and the shared reality that we inhabit? How can we feel comfortable? How can we realize what we truly are together? It's, I can't figure this out on my own. I can self-reflect and go in and sense the oneness, but the answer as to how we navigate forward together as a species, I can't answer that. All of us that we can get need to be working on that one. We won't know until we do it. Right? Yeah. You, know, you won't know until you do. So Yeah, and that's what you're going to do. Encourages us. Let's start trying to make some changes in our lives. Shit, I, I remember when Tupac said it. Let's change the way we eat. Change the way we treat each other. Because it's on us to do what we got to do to survive. Yeah. That's it. All right, fam. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. We will talk to you soon.